You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 78. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedbacks, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by airbrake.io. When your website experiences an error, Airbrake alerts you in real time and gives you all the details you need to fix that bug fast. Now, I've set up Airbrake three different times on three different apps now, and each time it's been crazy easy to do and beneficial right out of the gate. I particularly like the aggregations, which intelligently groups my exceptions into different types. So when I log into the site, I'm not looking at a list of 3,000 rows, I'm looking at 12. And I can easily see what they have in common. This is a massive improvement on my quality of life as a developer. And it's such great visual experience that it's easy to sell to management. Right now, Coding Blocks listeners can try Airbrake free for 30 days. Plus, get 50% off the first three months on the startup plan. To get started, visit airbrake.io slash codingblocks. That's airbrake.io slash codingblocks. All right, so on this episode, we've got our friend Will Madison, I am Will Madison on Twitter, on the show to talk about, you know, deliberate practice for programmers. So this is the first time we've done this, and, you know, hopefully the guest thing goes well. And, you know, welcome, Will. Thanks, man. Appreciate y'all having me on, dude. Yeah. I listen all the time. It's, it's awesome to be on the show this time. That's excellent. Will's one of our buddies that we worked with uh, a few years back, and just just an awesome guy. Knows his stuff, and, and unlike us, he's not in love with the .NET side of things. He he comes from a different perspective. So, you know, maybe you'll get a little bit of that on the show here. So, for all of our Java developers out there, Will will be here to make sure they get fair representation. That's right. I'm really here for all the gophers in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gopher. You did Dart at one point, right? Or no, no Dart. I did some Kotlin stuff, though. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. so if you're already part of our Slack community, you've probably had some interactions with Will or you've seen some of his interactions in the Slack community. He's an active member. And if you're not on the Slack channel and you haven't seen him, then you need to join. Go to www.codingblocks.net slash Slack and sign yourself up. Awesome. And as we like to do every show, we like to go over our reviews. We didn't put any names beside these, so I'm taking iTunes this time. Um, and somebody can figure out Stitcher for the next one. Not All bad. right. Excellent. All right. So uh, for iTunes, we got Pete O'Shea. We've got No Ops or No o, no PC Buzzwords, Montemur, Buster in Dallas, Mr. Bimble, Hey Dixon, Oren, 007, Channel Z13, Ram Cassiup, uh, Virtua Boza, Sravan Kumar Kilaru, I believe, was all of them. Man, he's so good with those names. Uh, no, dude, you want to know the funny thing is? I met some people out at MVP Summit from Croatia. No, dude. So let me give you a little clue. Wait a minute. You got tripped up once in your life. For the first time in your life, Alan got tripped. I mean, I can meet someone from Alabama and be like, what? How's and they can, they're born and raised in Alabama, and I wouldn't know how to pronounce their name. Uh, yeah, man. I like the the thing that got me on the Croatian thing is they pronounce every single letter. Every letter. So it doesn't matter how long it is, everyone has its own individual sound and it it threw me off man like i was trying to do it and the guy's like look dude you're never gonna get out it just just give up <laughs> all right I, I give 
So yes, thank thank you uh, guys that, that did the reviews there. Yeah, and I actually just got to meet uh, Virtual Boza last week. So I apologize for spelling your name wrong initially, but uh, thanks for the review. <laughs> and uh, now I'm going to read this review. So thank you big time to uh, Lickao, Lean Web Start, Mains, Tactical Penguin, and Super Good Dave. We really appreciate it. Definitely. And now, I so this, I think I've been listening to a lot more podcasts this week than I have been uh, in recent time. And I don't know why, but there was a lot of cool stuff that came out of it, both from Twitter and different podcasts. So uh, the first one is, and I'm curious what you guys think about this. So on it, on Security Now with Steve Gibson, uh, a podcast that I know Mike loves, and and I don't know if you other guys listen We've to it. We've actually mentioned it as a tip of the week in one of the early day early early episodes i, I mean he, he's really good he goes deep on things sometimes it's a little bit too much sometimes not enough i mean but whatever this one it was the episode where he was talking about um and i haven't even got to this part yet uh what's it called the i can't even web assembly web assembly thank you um but the interesting thing is in there we've heard of troy hunt the guy who has the have you been pwned.com right the thing where it has has your password leaked out and your username leaked out on one of the hacks online right well one of the things that he talked about in this episode that kind of threw me off and i don't know that i love is that cloudflare is a is a cdn that you can plug into your website and basically instead of your site being hit directly it'll always proxy through cloudflare right and and it's for security purposes it's for speed purposes it's for all kinds of things which is a really cool service considering it's free for the most part you know you can get you can get an enterprise plan or whatever but this is the part that bugged me and and it was shocking to me that Steve Gibson was really excited about it so here's what they're doing right now and and it's a neat idea Let's say that you go to log into your site. You've got your site set up with Cloudflare. When you submit your form to log in, it's going to see if, hey, did you submit a password? And if you did, it's now going to make a request out to the Have You Been Pwned API to find out if your password might have been uh, suspect at some point, like it had been hijacked. And they're going to insert a header into the content of the data that's coming across the pipe. So if on your site, you decided you wanted to take a look and see if that header's alive there, then you could say, oh, by the way, we see that you know Cloudflare sees that you have a password that exists out there on the web somewhere. Do you want to do something about it? And to me, that's kind of scary, right? Like it exposes the fact that your data isn't safe. Right. Like there's this man in the middle that can kind of look at things that are going back and forth. And you hope that Cloudflare is not doing anything bad with it. Well, I mean, let's let's be clear in this particular scenario. You are the user of the site. Yes. So you might be registering for the site. Uh, You know, maybe Alan has a site, a new e-commerce site, and you're going to set up an account on it and you're going to log in. And Alan's site is hosted on Cloudflare. And because uh, we live in a world, you know, post Snowden it's on you know he's got a, a SSL certificate on it and uh, he's hosted on Cloudflare for CDN reasons to distribute some of that traffic and so Cloudflare has to have the cert they need to have the certificate in order for that to work in order for them to be able to uh, you know relay that content for you and so they're already the man in the middle. You've purposely made them the man right, in the middle. Right. right. You consciously made them the man in the middle. So I feel like that's okay. And then when you, the user, log into Alan's brand new e-commerce site, um, that 
call, they recognize that you're logging in. They see the username password coming through. And so they make a call out to Troy Hunt's site. And then if there is, uh, if that pass user ID password is in there, then they will add a CF password pwned header to the call. And then that is what ultimately makes it back to you, your, to Alan's server, right? With the header. CF password, but does that not feel dirty to you guys at all? Like that, that sort of scares me. Feel it? I think it's awesome. I don't know, man. Yes, I feel both ways. Like it's definitely a good thing. I I feel like they're in a good position to do that sort of thing on a large scale. But at the same time, I don't really like the idea of being reminded that they have this kind of power. But I don't think it's anything's really changed other than we're more aware of it. So right. Well, okay. It seems like. Both of you might be getting tripped up on the fact that Cloudflare is doing this, right, as a convenience to their users. But you could do it on your own. Like if Alan did yeah. wasn't hosted on a CDN in this example e-commerce site that I made up for Alan, which by the way, get that up and running. <laughs> um, you know, he, he he could make this same API call himself. You right. could, and I guess that's my thing is. When you make that conscious decision in your application on your own, that's fine. But this this almost feels like there was the whole uproar about like when Comcast and Verizon and those guys were were inspecting packets that were coming across a wire, right? And they were changing things and they were trying to inject their own trackers and stuff. Ah, like that's different. I, I like I feel like this is getting into sort of that, you know, I hired you to be my CDN. I didn't hire you to be my my, you know, babysitter type thing right you know i don't know man like i don't know well what do you what do you think the only thing i was gonna say what will make it whack is if they if this is one of those things where they snuck it into like the end user license agreement and didn't like mm. send you a deliberate email saying hey by the way as a convenience we're going to be doing this extra thing like that would be whack if they did that otherwise i think it's actually pretty neat so some form of an opt-in yeah yeah even in the cloudflare configuration yeah you have to like yeah i want this i like this uh have i been owned and, and, have I been poned? And let's be clear. I don't think they're doing anything nefarious, right? Like, I, I don't think they're, like, I honestly believe that Cloudflare is usually looking out for guys trying to be the good guy and, and help protect sites and all that kind of thing. But it, it just, it was shocking to me that Steve Gibson was all excited about it. And I'm like, dude, like, you're always talking about man in the middle stuff. And, and, and this is like, this is something that they just kind of did. And, and I, again. But I mean, I, usually when we talk about a man in the middle attack or anything like that, like, it's because you didn't know the man in the middle. But in the case of Cloudflare, you had to consciously make them the man, man in the middle to serve for up your, your website. To serve up your content, not yes. to modify your content, right? Like they're, they're adding, not, they're just adding a header. That's modifying your content. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. Again, oh, like, that's a pretty weak one, though. Uh, you know, again, I, I don't think it's a huge bad deal, but it, it was it was a little interesting. I mean, the too. Verizon one that you're talking about, I mean, like they were adding JavaScript and HTML to the payload that right. was being delivered right. to the client. Right. That is I know it's different. not the same level, but you know, again, just an interesting thing. So uh, definitely we'll have a link to the, to that particular show in the show notes here. Another one. So super good, Dave, who left us a review this time. Thank you. Uh, we've been chatting in Slack because our Slack channels are awesome. And, and we've been hanging out in the gear channel and the upcoming Intel eighth generation processors with the AMD Vega graphics chips are soon to come out. And those things are supposed to be on par with the like NVIDIA GTX 1050, like somewhere in between the 1050 and the 1060. So that should be hitting pretty soon. Both Dell and HP have some pretty decent offerings coming up. So uh, we're both waiting and keeping our fingers crossed for that. So 
Do you know when? Like, should I hold off uh, buying a laptop if I was thinking about buying one in the next three months? So it was supposed to happen in March. Now, I don't know if this whole meltdown thing that happened with Intel and AMD, by the way, also had some bad stuff happen with Ryzen recently. Rise and fall. Yeah, rise and fall. So I don't know if it's because of that they're trying to fix some of these things before they go out full market. But I would imagine here probably within the next 30 to 60 days, these things should be hitting because it was already supposed to be on the market. So, uh, and I think some of the Dells, uh, nah, they're not up for pre-order either. I was looking at those earlier. So as soon as we get some solid information, we'll put links on that. I mean, good. I hope so. Cause I need to, I need to mine some Bitcoin on the go. <laughs> so I need as good of a graphics card to my laptop as I can get. You heard that they hacked a uh, Tesla, right? And they, uh, they found an open Kubernetes thing from Tesla and they actually had some of the, uh, some of the Teslas out there doing mining. <laughs> The car. The car. Like people were driving around. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was found. Yeah. I I don't know if it was the actual cars or what, but um, they definitely had a Kubernetes thing that wasn't password protected and it was hijacked. It's on this, it was on the same episode that they were talking about the WebAssembly stuff. So, uh, yeah, that one was packed full of cool information. This uh, next 2018, uh, yeah, no flying cars, but <laughs> they're mining Bitcoin. You, That's right. I heard a story about uh, Fave Icons uh, hacking some sort of uh, uh, doing some sort of nefarious uh, mining. It's crazy times. It's ridiculous, man. All right. So some really cool news that I just saw on Twitter and actually uh, Six Figure Dev, they are the ones that shared this out. They just released information about Windows Server 2019, and that's going to come built in with Kubernetes and Linux support. Times is a changing for Microsoft. That is amazing. So building in Google and Linux, right? Like that's a, that's pretty cool stuff. Uh, let's see. We'll have a link to that as well. Uh, and then, okay. So another thing related to just really cool stuff happening. I, I love Docker. One of the things that's been frustrating on Windows is typically if you wanted to run a Windows Docker container, then you had to go down there to your little whale thing and say, hey, use Windows containers, right? And <laughs> your, if you, whale thing. Your, your whale thing. Your whale thing, the guy that's shooting some, some water out the top of them, right? But if you wanted to use, let's say, you know, Alpine or some other Linux container, then you'd have to go down there, click the little whale thing and say, you know, switch to Linux containers, which is cool that you could do that on Windows. But it was always a little frustrating that like, oh, man, I can't run my SQL Server developer container next to my Elasticsearch container, right? Now you can. So with the latest release that just hit um, like a day or two ago, they now have the ability to run, and I think uh, I put the acronym up here. It's oh, called man. LCOW. Yeah, we got to come up. We need to go ahead and solidify a proper way to pronounce this now. LCAL? Lil Cal. Lil Cal. I propose Lil Cal. I like it. All right, so Lil Cal, that's Linux containers on Windows. You can now run them side by side. So I, I don't know how fully baked and fully featured and how well this works yet because I haven't had a chance to play with it, but that's truly exciting. Like, hey, man, pull down whatever you want from Docker Hub and run it. Just, you know, you have one configuration and you go. So that's really cool. All right. And then the last bit of news, seeing so it seems like I've taken over this section today, is I've, you know, I've heard about blockchain. I invest in some cryptocurrencies and and I like to watch my money flush down the toilet. So that's, <laughs> that's fun, right? It, which will, I, I think will also does some, some, uh, some bit mining and some investing. So, it, you know, maybe we'll get his thoughts on this. 
But I never truly really knew what blockchain was. I'd heard about it and I never really taken the time to look into it. And, and I've always heard, oh, it could change the world. It could, you know, it totally changed the way that you do things. And I was like, really? Like, I mean, Bitcoin's like, I, okay, it's, a, it's not regular money, but fine, whatever. I listened to the MS Dev show where they had a guy on who was talking about blockchain, who works on the blockchain project for Azure. And it was an awesome episode because in a nutshell, what I learned was the whole purpose of blockchain is really just having a live ledger, right? Let's a distributed live ledger so that lots of ledgers. Yeah. Lots of them. So that basically you can't just go put something in because it's not going to be validated, right? Like this whole bit mining thing. And I didn't know any of this stuff is really, you know, somebody's going to solve this problem and then that's going to get put on something. And then the problem is going to be easy for other people to solve, to verify that that was a legit answer. Right? So the part that was interesting was this, all right, that all makes perfect sense for the, for the bit mining and the monetary, the financial aspect of things. Right. What didn't make sense to me was when people were talking about different industries. And this is where I thought things were really cool is think about something, ice cream, if you're going to be, uh, you decided to start your own ice cream business, let's call it Madison's Ice Creams, right? Madison's Best Ice Creams. When you ship these things from point A to point B, that stuff has to stay refrigerated at a particular temperature or below, right? Because if it gets above it, then you could get listeria, you could get all kinds of, of bacteria and problems, right? And how do you verify that? You typically can't, right? You just trust that the refrigerated truck that you put it on is going to be proper from point A to point B. Now you put an IoT device in there, right? With the packages of ice cream, when it gets shipped, that thing's constantly monitoring the temperature. And so now you have this ledger from the time that it left your shop to the time it arrived at the grocery store. And it can be proven that, hey, the temperature was, you know, 35 degrees here or, or 30, obviously below 35, but probably 32, 31, whatever. And now you'll know if there's a bump in it and you'll be able to say, hey, there was a problem on that refrigerated truck. We can't put these things on the shelf because it could be a health hazard, right? So that was an interesting take to me on a real life problem other than cryptocurrency or something like that, right? Like, where does this stuff actually fit in? So that that was really neat, right? It's And the way the guy put it, and I can't remember his name, I should probably look it up, but the way the guy put it was the blockchain is for when you can't fully trust the information coming from another source, right? Like it doesn't make sense to use blockchain internally in your company typically because you got to jump through a bunch of hoops to make it happen. But when you need to verify an outside party, then it's really cool. So at any rate, man, I highly recommend listening to that episode. I literally just did a tiny summary, but he goes into all kinds of cool stuff. So uh, good stuff. Oh, and, and then I guess the last thing is I'm going to talk the entire episode. Um, <laughs> the last thing here is... Is this where we say this is your favorite part of the show? <laughs> no, not typically. Usually we have news from everybody, right? I, I guess I, I was the one listening and reading stuff this week. Um 
So, no, the last thing is, we've mentioned it before, if you guys are, you know, go check out codingblocks.net slash resources. We have books up there. We have things like Pluralsight and all that kind of stuff. So anything that we find extremely valuable that we use to learn and we share with you guys to learn, we'll have on that page. So if you sign up for it, you know, it's not going to cost you anything extra. As a matter of fact, it might even come at a discount. But, you know, if you plan on buying any of those things, please do check that out and, you know, go from there. All right, and on to the show topic today. We're talking about uh, deliberate practice. And recently I did a talk at Orlando Code Camp, and I know you guys up in Georgia are just devastated that you had to miss it. <laughs> I know a, a lot of listeners out there are just heartbroken about this. And so I wanted to bring a little bit back and do it on the show here so you didn't have to miss the whole thing. But wait, before you go on, you asked a lot of people to come up and kick you in the shin. Did that happen? No, there was luckily a, a kind of a podium and I had a laser pointer. <laughs> so there are a couple of people I suspected they got that look in their eye like they might be kicking. So I made sure to blind them. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. E- well, it's either that or should we be disappointed that no one made enough of an effort to actually kick you in the shit? Right. right. I also had a table full of stickers in front of me. Oh, so I oh, think that, that kind of helped distract. I think the problem is, is when you see Joe in life, he's way bigger than what you think he might be. It's kind of like Will, right? Like the first time you meet Will, you're like, uh, okay, yeah, I'm going to be real nice to this guy. <laughs> as long as the spacing is good in your code, we're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually what we're talking about today is tabs versus spaces. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's all what deliberate practice is all about, practicing how you space your code. Yes. Right? Yeah, you can make an argument for that. <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, a big part of the reason I wanted to do the, the talk was because of the podcast and, and thanks to the podcast and really um, because of the Slack, I've gotten to interact with a lot of people from a lot of different diverse backgrounds and different countries and different stages in their career, uh, different programming languages. And uh, we, we kind of talk a lot on the show about like what kind of brings us together, you know, like what, who are these people and why are, you know, why are we able to communicate? Like, what is it that we have in common? And what I've kind of come around to thinking about is is basically thinking that the people listening to the show or going to Slack, um, they have a vested interest in being better programmers. And so I've been on this kind of like this journey, reading a couple of books and thinking about it and reading some articles, talking to other people about what it means to be a better programmer and how we can get there. And so uh, I, I pulled together some info from uh, like five different books, which we'll, we'll have uh, listed on the, the show notes. And I kind of pulled together the info that I thought made the most sense for software engineers and tried to kind of dump it into one place and and distill out the the kind of the core of those books that I thought could make the most sense to us. And uh, so I was going to talk it over with you guys, and uh, hopefully we'll have a, a fun and engaging, rowdy show. <laughs> As always. So uh, uh, divided right. up into three pieces, I um, basically want to talk about what it means to be good. Like, what does it mean to be a good uh, and a better programmer? And what deliberate it practices... Compiles. That's the answer. <laughs> if it compiles, you know you are good. Show's over. All right. That's right. Uh, semicolons, man. Semicolons. Oh. And uh, what deliberate practices and why researchers say it's the best way to advance bold skills in bold. The best way to advance skills. And then how we can we can take those lessons and bring it into programming. And I uh, just want to point out before we dive in, you know, I said we've already divin in. Uh, that uh, if you go to codingblocks.net slash practice, I've got a bunch of resources up there. So you're going to find a lot of other links and some essays and stuff that I wrote while kind of preparing for this talk. Cool. So first up, I wanted to ask you guys actually, and uh, maybe we'll start with Will, just kind of put him on the spot. Uh, when I say someone's a, a good programmer, like if I say, hey, my buddy Will's a, a great programmer, what does that mean to you? 
Well, for me, like it, it means a couple of things. So, like the way I've always looked at it is that it's it's just like recognizing skill in any other way, right? When I watch Kobe Bryant play basketball, right, like I can tell greatness when I'm watching it. Uh, so, like normally, like when you look at somebody's coaching, you're like, okay, this person is deliberate. They're intentional about what they're doing. Like they actually care about the craft. And for me, that's that's sort of what good means, right? Like if I can look at your code and be like, okay, this person has the things lined up, right? They like name things with great intention. They didn't just go in here and haphazardly kind of just throw some code together and make it work. That's kind of what, what good means. And like, they're always trying to improve day over day. And you see that progression. Yeah. I like the idea of improve too, because it, it kind of says like, well, maybe there's different paths that you've taken to get to this spot. You know, maybe you've read a lot of books. Maybe you've watched a lot of videos. Maybe you've done a lot of side projects. There are multiple avenues to get there, but kind of the core there is that you care, right? And so because you care, you found some way to to get better and you kept kind of hammering at it until you got to a good spot. Yeah, I was, I was, gonna, I was thinking of my own answer to that, which might be that in the code, you can see, good practices. So like an example might be the inclusion of unit tests uh, and the, and maybe the way some of that stuff is structured, right? Um, use of interfaces and things like that, like removing away um, concreteness as much as possible in, in the places where it's not necessary, things like that. Yeah, that sounds like a kind of dedication of, to discipline there. Yeah, I was just trying to think of like like expanding on what Will was saying, like, you know, when you're looking for, when you're looking at someone else's code to be able to define like, well, what does good mean, right? You know, you're, you're kind of seeing those types of things in it, right? It's not, it's not, well, like, this must work and I can't understand it, so they must be better than I am. That's not what I'm looking for. Man, that's a, that's a tough one for me. I, I So, I, I'm always that guy that straddles the line between practicality and... And pretty code. Like I, I, I'm always trying to find the balance there. So I, I know that that probably most of the time my code's going to be good, but it's not going to be the most perfect that it could be because at some point I just call I call the ball, right? Like I'm like, I, I gotta move on from here. But I think for me, look at and this is why it's such a tough one, because I don't think anybody would ever look at my code and say it's bad. I think for me, a good developer is somebody that I follow along and I understand why they did things, right? Like it's, it may not be the absolute best pattern, but it might be because we don't know the the situation that person was in. But when I see obviously bad patterns, I'm like, that's what, that, it's almost like an anti-good programmer to me. Like, I don't think I ever look at anybody and say, I think that's a good programmer. I look at some and I say, wow, that person really needs to improve or I just don't have a thought, right? Like I just assume everybody's always striving to be better. And so, so that's, I kind of opposite is what you're saying. It is. You you can more easily point out the bad programmer. Yes. But the good programmer, you're like, "Eh, I just assume you're all good until I see something like, whoa, you're awful. And and, and typically it's not even, for me, it's not going to be one thing, right? Like it's going to be, you just see this pattern evolve over time where just bad decisions are made, right? Like, I I mean, dude, when when I first met Joey, like he would give me these, these five page, you know, dissertations on this is why this exists like this. Right. And it was because he was sort of ashamed of what, what he was presenting to me, but I also understood the reason why that was happening. Right. And and so 
it, that's why I say like having saying somebody's a good programmer. I, I think it's just you almost see it in the way that they approach the problems because you can almost find your way through the code that way. And, and I guess that's my take on it. Yeah, I don't know where I read this quote at, but like just kind of piggybacking on the notion of like a bad developer. I think it said something along the lines of, "There's no such thing as like a bad developer. It's more so reasonable developers in a bad situation." Yes, hmm. yes. You know what I mean? But I've seen bad developers. I'm not. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I've seen some. <laughs> Well, you know, I was thinking like there's been plenty of times when I've gone through Codebase and I can say like, look at that crappy code. I can say this is bad code, but there's not a lot of times I've seen something said, oh, hey, that's good code. And a lot of times I, I tend to think of good coders versus good code. And maybe that's because I'm only seeing things kind of with the magnifying glass, you know, got my nose down in it. But I, I definitely think of people as being good programmers. It makes me kind of think of like, you know, what I personally think of as being a good programmer. It probably has to do uh, with kind of a mix of what, what you guys all said, but also like, like Alan's really said, like a focused on kind of pragmatism and what they did kind of in a bad situation. Right. Or like Will's quote too. Um, so I recognize that there's those trade-offs and I, so I can understand when someone consistently makes good decisions and is able to move the ball forward, even in bad situations. Yep. So, uh, there's this uh, study. Have you guys ever heard of the, the notion of the 10 X developer? I had not. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is a real hot, hot topic. Um, there's a lot of articles about there about the myth of the 10 X developer and also about the myth of the myth of the 10 X developer. And there's some really good arguments on both sides, but I thought this was interesting because this is kind of um, a highly touted term for talking about w what it means to be good and how you kind of can compare programmers. And it comes from a really flawed study that was actually done in, get this, 1968, <laughs> 50 years ago. Programming was a little bit different back then. But uh, the study was old. It was done on 12 different programmers. Not very many. They all had similar levels of experience, but only 12. And they did uh, a couple tests over the course of like two afternoons. Mm. So not, not a great test, not a great sample size. And you got to kind of wonder like what kind of programming questions are you really getting answered in two hours here? You know, maybe four answers there. Like that's not the kind of things that I think about when I think about tough code. You know, I talked about people making consistently good decisions and dealing with bad situations. And it kind of sounds to me like they kind of gave them a couple like toy or interview questions, timed them and said, oh my gosh, you're 10 times or 20 times better than the worst person. Hmm. Now I will say though that um, when I actually wrote a, ended up writing an article about this because I looked into why it was so controversial. Because to me, like reading that, I was like, oh man, this is obviously flawed. This is a terrible study. We shouldn't talk about it like this. But what I found is like there actually have been just, like similar studies done on better sample sizes over the years with more modern languages. And it kind of substantiated the claim that like, you know what? It's not crazy for people to be in order of magnitude better than programmers at certain measurable things. And we could think about like basketball. Like, is it totally crazy to say that the best player in the NBA today is 10 times better than the worst NBA player. Yeah. I tell That's you why I definitely can't pronounce his name. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, going back to your, your example of Kobe Bryant, right? I mean, let, let's, let's pick him apart a little bit from a perspective of an NBA player, because I think what, what Joe just said was extremely important. A certain aspect of a programmer or a particular focus of a programmer could be Kobe Bryant is definitely 10 times better score than the worst player in the NBA, right? There's no question. The dude dropped 81 points in a game. That doesn't happen, right? Dennis Rodman hardly ever scored five points in a game. So if you just took 10 X by there, you know, he's already beating him. I think. Yeah, it, and that's what they did. 
They looked at individual tasks and said, this person is 10 times better scorer than this person. This person is 10 times better you know, rebounder than this other person. Right. And, and that's where I think that there definitely are going to be people that excel at things, right? Like there are some people that are really good at algorithms, right? Like they, they have a math type background. And then there's some people that are really good at fitting the puzzle pieces together. This whole ser- series that we just went over with clean architecture, right? That's another aspect of it that maybe not the math driven person is going to look at and, and care about, right? So I definitely think that there is room to say that somebody's 10 times better than another at a particular uh, focus, right? Yeah, this is definitely one of those flame wars. Like one one quote uh, actually from one of my homies named Brian Lyles said, is he likes to think of a 10X developer as somebody who can make five other developers twice as productive, right? Like somebody who can like amplify their ability amongst the team and make the team level up as opposed to being a rock star. Uh, like I yeah. forget the dude's name from the Phoenix Project, but that guy. Like, yeah, I, I'm really interested in that topic of like a, that notion of a force magnifier. And I think like um, one of the things we talked about recently on the uh, the productivity and tech, like kind of the manager talk we had was like, as a manager, like you have the ability to magnify other people's outputs, like much greater than any one individual person. Like if you've got, a, say, a manager of 10 people, like theoretically, if they can remove the blockers, if they can facilitate that communication and make things go, like you can potentially have a lot more of a, a valuable outcome than you can as one individual contributor. At least that's what I think. Man, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, And there's also the flip side of being like a quote unquote 10X developer, right? Like if you always like that amount of pressure all the time being on you, right? It could lead to burnout. It could lead to all kind of unhealthy things, right? Like an, a disproportionate amount of knowledge silo happening in the organization, like which is not scalable. So like if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, you win the lotto, like what's going to happen? How are they going to continue without you? Like it's just it's just yeah. kind of all bad if you kind of get into superhero mode. But there's also a flip side to it. I mean, Outlaw shared with me years ago, like I, I, probably not too long after I met him. Like they they had done a code competition, I think when when you were younger, and there was some dude that beat you, but you you were pretty sure that your code was better and all this kind of stuff. But he got a little bit further along, and so so then this whole question of a 10x does does the code quality matter or does it just mean output? Right. Because if you can write an application 10 times faster than I can, but then nobody can maintain it after you, have you really created 10 X what somebody else would do? There's fast. And then, and then there's maintainable is basically what you're going after. Well, not just that. I mean, there's other aspects. I'm just saying that, that you can't measure, like it's hard to measure those things. There, there's not typically quantitative analysis of that type of stuff. You could probably say that you could take static code analysis after the fact and, and put grades on it, but there's still going to be how modular is your code or does it scale well? Like there's going to be people who are really good at scaling. There's going to be people that are good at the algorithms. There's going to be people that are good at actually writing good patterns. Like, how do you measure some of that stuff, right? Yeah, some people write code, ugly code, but it gets the job done and they write it really fast. Right, right. And and there's value in those type of people, by the way, right? Yeah, I mean, going back to the minimal viable product, right? Yep. I, I mean, yeah. At any rate, go ahead, Joe. Let's, let's uh, keep her choking. Oh, yeah. That was just want to point out. There's, like, there's all sorts of stuff, just like uh, you were saying, Alan. Like, there's meetings, there's JIRA, there's communication, there's, um, you know, setting proper expectations, there's estimates. There's a lot of things that are, uh, I mean, estimates, you can you can quantify pretty easily your accuracy there. But there's a lot of things that are just really tough to, to measure. But I don't think that's an excuse, especially after reading these books. I don't think that's an excuse for just saying, like, well, we can't do it because there are other people in other fields doing just that. Like whoever Kobe Bryant's coach is, 
Like he's not focused on maximizing Kobe Bryant's stats or any individual player's stats, right? They're focused on winning the the Super Bowl or whatever. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were getting Just, that. you know, continuing the whole Kobe Bryant analogy, like one thing too that anybody, if you've like done any research into Kobe, like anybody who knows Kobe will tell you he's one of the hardest working people ever in the league, like would show up and be shooting shots hours before the game, right? Like it kind of goes back to the whole notion that we're talking about deliberate practice. Like when Kobe was in the league, there was probably nobody out working Kobe and it showed every night, right? He practiced like he played and, and you can't, you can't argue with the results. Pretty much every famous player, continuing along with the NBA analogy, has been like that. I mean, Jordan was another one where, like, you know, from the time that he, you know, first got interested in basketball as a kid, he would spend every moment practicing that he could. I mean, it's everything, right? It's everything in life. If you take the best person from the NFL, if you stick him with sports, right? Jerry Rice, same thing. If you if you go with if you go with Tesla. This dude eat, lives, and breathes trying to change the way the world works, right? Like everybody that ends up becoming the best at what they do is somebody that's almost to a certain degree obsessed with what they do, right? Like, I mean, I know we all do it. We all look at our code and we're like, oh man, I could have made that better. Or, or I mean, that's the reason we do the podcast. It's the reason why, like, Will, you read books all the time, right? You listen to podcasts. It's the reason we do practice stuff. It's because nothing's ever good enough to a certain degree, which is, it's a good and a bad thing. But I, I, I think it transcends sports. It transcends everything. There are just people that always want to achieve the very best that they can possibly do. And that is how you get to a 10X, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value. And even if you never make it to that 10x, like I wouldn't mind being five, six, seven times more productive than I am right now, if that's theoretically possible. So maybe there's some things I could kind of get from looking at some of this research and some of these articles and books that I could kind of apply to software engineering to get me at least part of the way there. And if even if I don't want to commit fully, maybe I could take some of this away and uh, improve my life. And um, one thing I, I kind of noticed in looking at um, some of the books, particularly Peak which we'll have links and uh, outliers is they separate knowledge from skill. So what they said was basically that knowledge is what you know. And, and when I say no, I mean like you understand you grok. It's not enough to like be able to, you know, recite the definition of like say solid, right? You need to understand it at a deep level, but there's still a difference between that understanding and being able to apply that knowledge. And I think basketball or sports is a great analogy too, because you know, you can have a coach or a, you know, a mentor or, or a peer who really understands like the way the bones and the muscles and the nutrition and, you know, they can grok all that stuff, but they're not going to be able to hit that percentage of field goals or, you know, do whatever kind of skill level type thing that there is involved. And so they draw a line between those two. And what I kind of thought was funny when I was doing this research is like, I can tell you all day, I can list a long list of things, uh, resources online for improving your knowledge, things like Pluralsight, Code School, books, well, you know, just Google like your favorite language and getting started and you're going to find 20 different articles at going for that angle. So I feel like we're pretty well covered on the knowledge, but we don't really talk about how to advance skills so much in programming. You guys agree with that? I do. 
And I think some of the more kind of re- recent um, sites, like things like Code School, that kind of like try to intersperse some actual programming in between, or sometimes they actually have some, um, some like a mentor, like our buddy uh, Jason Wyman over at uh, Unity 3D College. He does like an intensive six week kind of almost like a boot camp, but he actually uh, is there and is able to provide code reviews and whatnot in between those lessons and actually work with the people. And so I feel like our industry is kind of getting there by looking at some of the ways that other industries have, have handled this. And so I'm excited about that and uh, I want more of it. And uh, we can see um, more, you know, some more hot topics like, uh, you know, interview questions we kind of alluded to already where like uh, the job might ask you, uh, you know, how to balance a binary tree and then you get into work and you're, you know, changing the colors of divs. But you're just, <laughs> you're describing something different than, though, than just practicing on your own though, right? Yep. I, I kind of divide it into two parts. I say that, like there are things that you can absolutely do on your own. I call those the X for Y's. It's basically do a thing for X minutes at such and such skill level, and then measure your output. And so that works great for things like code wars or code fights or practice problems. Um, if you want to get like a list of like, you know, college, um, like what you call it, um, discrete, you know, prove, proving things by induction, like get a bunch of problems, do as many as you can at a certain skill level, time it, see how it goes, do the same thing, you know, tomorrow. Same thing after that, same thing after that. Those are really easy to do on your own because you can assess them without any sort of bias. But for those things that are are not so easy to measure like communication or um, you know, how effective you can be working in a team, things like that, I really think that you need some sort of either peer or mentor or some other person to work with. And I actually think there's some really good ways to get that. Because even though it's hard and it's not nearly as easy as being able to kind of sit down, tap, tap, do it on your own, Thanks to the internet, it's never been easier to get this kind of help for any field. Yeah. And the reason why I asked that though, like, you know, the mentoring kind of like coaching scenario part of it, right. Is that it almost feels like there's maybe a little bit of backlash happening in the developer community, right. Where like for so long it has felt like, Hey man, if you don't, um, if you don't put in your 60 hours at work, and you're not, you know, you don't have your own apps in the app store that you're writing and you're not con- contributing to all these open source projects and you don't have a blog that you're writing, like, then you're doing it wrong. Right. But, you know, here lately, it seems like, and maybe, maybe they were more than just lately and I'm just only now recognizing them, but, you know, more questions and articles about like, Hey, um, in my spare time, I don't write code. Does that make me a bad developer? Right. Like there's several articles like that. Right. So it almost feels like there's backlash in that among developers about like, hey, I wanted to do something besides just sit behind a keyboard all day. Yep, absolutely. So how do you balance that? Uh, I've got some ideas. I actually think that because um, it can be kind of hard to find like mentors or coaches, I think that the best way to do something like this is basically through some sort of work organization where like you do some sort of like pair programming or you work with like a high output developer. If, uh, you know, some sort of coach or we'll say manager in this case can kind of pair up good combinations of peoples, then there's actually a lot of really good tips for how to work in situations one-on-one to get a lot out of a little bit of time. Will, you have thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say one thing, too. Like, a lot of the people that, that I admire in, you know, our developer ecosystem, you know, do take breaks from being rock stars during the day, right? Like, they hike or bike. You know what I mean? Like, they don't just always, you know, slam fingers to keys all the time. So, like, I think it's important to have that balance. Um, I mean, and some, and some of the times, like, the things that you see blow up, like Docker, right? Who knows how many years they spent 
writing that before it was a big thing. It wasn't like it didn't happen overnight. Um, so I think sometimes like without that context, you don't really see the full picture of what went into what what we see at the end of the day. Yeah, and there's no there's absolutely no obligation to kind of do this sort of stuff like day and night. You don't. I don't think you have to be Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, if you want to be better, I think it's okay to put in some time and make yourself five, ten percent, you know, better. And I think that's really good if that's what you what you want to do. And you don't have to want to do it. And, and actually, one thing um, I kind of focused on is like I, I kind of looked at it as like, well, what advice do we have for advancing skills? And what I kept kind of seeing from people is like, hey, do a side project as a way of kind of learning to to program. They would tell it to a lot of university students, like that's kind of the like the kind of standard advice. It's like go do a side project. It's great on the resume and it gets you some real world experience. So you sound like that uh with your air quotes there that you don't necessarily believe in that. I believe that side projects are great for a lot of reasons, but I don't think they're after doing this reading, I don't think they're a great way of advancing skills. So if I want to be a better JavaScript programmer, then I don't think that a side project is the best way to do that. And what, what is? I, I want to kind of catch it because I think that a lot of times your goal may not truly be to better be a better, better JavaScript yeah, developer. Better, better's good too. You could be <laughs> a butter. <laughs> you could be a butter programmer. You can also pick a pick of people and all of that. Uh, that's pretty. Oh good. man, you're good. <laughs> you're good. But uh, yeah, so because I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think we've all told people pick up a side project or go go contribute to some GitHub project out there so that you can see how other people are collaborating and creating code and those patterns, right? So, so it sounds like you're saying that there might be a better way to build skill. So, to to be clear, when we're talking about doing a side project, it's to get practice in the entire thing, right? Like, like you don't say do a side project to just learn JavaScript because that's not what you're going to be doing, right? You're going to be learning how to build an application. You're going to be learning how the files fit together on the file system. You're going to be learning how to commit it to source control. Like it's more of the entire ecosystem, like the beginning A to Z type stuff, right? So mm -hmm. what you're suggesting then is if you're trying to build a particular skill, in this case, JavaScript, then creating a side project may not be the right way to go, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm getting at. And I, I kind of think of side projects as being like akin to a scrimmage. You can think about like a soccer game, right? Like a, a soccer practice where we got all the, the uh, soccer players together, 22 people on a field. You throw down one ball in the middle and say, go play soccer. That's a great way to build teamwork. That's a great way to get used to playing in games. And it's probably going to help you win. But it's not, not an effective way. Like seven years old, because then all the kids just rush to the ball. And <laughs> right. Wherever the ball goes, all all it's like both a pile sides, of both teams, they're just all moving wherever the ball's going. Right. And even the goalies. But, uh, even the goalies. So in a in a whatever like a two hour soccer game, I think uh, I ended up seeing that um, your average player would end up uh, touching the ball twenty times, right? And then course of the entire two hour game. Now practice. Right. That's another story. For one, there's going to be a lot more balls, right? It's uh, I think the ratio I saw for just the study I was looking at was um, four person per ball. So if you're interested in working on your ball handling skills, your <laughs> passing ability, your ability to block goals is another good one. Then a scrimmage is not it. Like think about how many goals are attempted in a, a soccer scrimmage. It could potentially be very few. So your goalie, even though they're in a, a critical area of the game, they could actually be getting very little practice over that two-hour game because, you know, maybe the defense is doing a great job. I think about a cooker, kicker on a football game, right? They may only be in the entire game for three minutes, 
But those three minutes could win the game. Okay, but let's let's think about this though. Because going with the sports analogy, I mean you have a very targeted, very specific kind of thing that you're like uh you know, going with your your kicker example, like, okay, I need to work on my field goal. Uh, long field goal attempts. So I'm going to keep moving the ball back and further and further and, you know, try to extend that distance. Right. Um, and my accuracy, but when you're talking about developing, like, what are you going to do? Like, um, I need to practice my array declarations. I need to make sure that when I make an array, Oh, it's spot on. Awesome. Right. Like it's different. Well, I think that is, and I'm curious where this is going to go because I think that is really the bigger problem is, is if we're talking about sports, it's very easy to say a goalie's job is to block shots coming into this goal, right? Like you have one very specific task that you need to get good at. And yeah, there's different approaches, right? Some balls are going to come up in the air. Some are going to come down on the ground. Some are going to be spinning. Some are going to be moving, but you have one task. If you're trying to learn JavaScript now, are you trying to learn about memory management? Are you trying to learn about performance? Are you trying to learn about asynchronous? Like, I guess that's the thing is where do you call exactly? Like, do you have to say the skill that I'm trying to learn right now is asynchronous JavaScript and anything else I need to put completely to the side, mm-hmm. right? Or, or like you said, I need to learn about the fastest way to access data in JavaScript. So I need to learn everything about the different data structures in JavaScript. Like, is that what you're saying? And, and then my next question is, how do you know that that's what you need to know? How do you know what you don't know that you need to right. know? And that's always to me, the hardest part. Yeah. And the one thing I was going to say too, like in, in keeping with the sports analogy is one thing that you could have to be wary of, you know, as a former athlete, you have these people who are like practice all-stars, right? Like, you look like you look like the man is no, as long as nobody's guarding you, right? Mm-hmm. You can hit all the open threes. What are you going to do when somebody's in your face? Like, what are you going to do when the lights actually come on, right? And I think that one thing that we got to do, like as practitioners, is is more so not trying to like practice to be a specialist, right? Like, if I was the goalie, all you got to do is kick balls at me, and all you got to do is block them all day. But really, we're more like we're more like Coach Belichick, right? Like, I got to be a student. I got to like watch film. And also sometimes I got to get down and put my hand in the dirt and like show you how to do things. Like it's multiple facets to make you more well-rounded, not just practicing one thing at a time. But hold up. Let's take this to a different analogy then, because this is going to be the show where we talk about things that we never talk about apparently, because we're talking about sports ball a lot here and that never happens, right? (laughs) Sports ball. Yeah. But let's take it to a military approach. When you go and you enlist in the army, the Marines, the air force, whatever, you practice things over and over and over and over again because when the time comes that that needs to happen, it automatically kicks in. Like you don't think about it, right? And so, and this is where, so what you said about, you know, the lights come on, things change. Practicing that skill over and over allows you to more easily go into auto mode mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, don't get me wrong. There's some people who are just going to excel. Michael Jordan, right? We talked about him. That dude excelled at just destroying people at the end of a game. That's not something you can learn. You either have that or you don't in you. To a certain degree, I know you're making a face over there, but there, there are just some people that don't like, for instance, there are tons of people out there that all go to college. Some people excel at taking tests. Other people get crushed under the pressure. They know the information, but they get sat down, they have a timer, and they're like, 
I they stress out, right? And, and so that's where I think it's important. I think what you're saying about the skills is very important. You have to test those. You have to use them. You have to to practice them constantly so that those become second nature so that you can focus on the bigger picture when it's time to work on it, I think, anyways. Well, that's a great way of putting it. I think of it as like a higher level abstraction to kind of bring it back into coding terms. Like when you're first learning how to do something, you think at a very explicit procedural level, right? When you think about like, say, um, you know, playing uh, playing guitar, right? You don't think like G, C, A minor, D. You think like middle finger goes here and index finger here. Keep it pointed up a little bit. Keep my wrist straight. You know, it's it's very uh, explicit and procedural, right? That's how you think. And you practice that thing a thousand times. And it gets to the point where you think like, oh, play that play that song I like, right? And so your brain has created like a shortcut. It's It's created a label and is able to generate the output that you need. And so you're now de- dealing at a, a higher expressive level. Right? It's like working in a, a higher level of abstraction or a high level language. You've moved that explicit procedural to now be implicit and declarative. It's you just, just say detail. what you want right. and it happens. Right. And so that's what I'm kind of saying is like, if we can, if we can get this stuff down, like if, let's say like I want to be a better JavaScript programmer because I want to be able to think about my business problem or I want to be able to knock out a bunch of code without refreshing and checking stuff in the console every three times because it's a distraction. Then I can focus on just that one thing to enable me to do other stuff. But you obviously you don't want to overtrain one specific thing. Like it's not going to help you to kind of be on the, you know, the sidelines doing that like high kicking stuff that football players do. You don't want to do that for all of your practices, right? You want to have like some sort of balance. So you do want those scrimmages in there because they're important, but you also want to be kicking those field goals. You want to be doing, you know, weightlifting and other kinds of like, you know, muscle training as well. So that when the, the lights come on, you've already built this language so you can think at a higher level and accomplish things. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And uh, the, the kind of the danger with side projects is that you can potentially have a lot of stuff going on. So I know like, I have a bad habit of doing this with side projects. I just started one uh, like two weekends ago where I got Elasticsearch, which I'm not too familiar with. I got Kibana in there for doing some visualizations. I'm doing it in .NET Core, right? So I'm not real familiar with that. I'm doing it all in Docker, which I'm also not familiar with. So I got like five different things. And what ends up happening is I start taking shortcuts because, you know, I only got two hours before I got to go do something, right? So I want to get something on screen. So there's this incentive there for me to focus on the side project and the result. And what can happen there is other things start slipping, like unit test starts slipping, good abstractions, my clean architecture starts slipping because I just want to get Docker working. I want to get something on the screen before I have to be done for the night. But and when that happens, I'm codifying them. But that's okay, I'm reinforcing though, right? those bad ideas. That, that it's can okay be a, depending on my goals. Right. That's what right. I was going to say. Did you have an implicit or an explicit, I should say, did you have an explicit defined goal? Because maybe your goal is, hey, I want to see how all this stuff works together. And if that's what it is, then you've accomplished something, regardless of how poorly you did it, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, it sounds like what you're getting at is what Outlaw just said is – Maybe that's not a bad thing. It just really depends on what you set out to do. Yeah, I mean, you know how to unit test. So, you know, okay, fine, if you skipped on that, but you were, like, picking up a new skill, like, uh, using Kibana and Docker and things like that, like, you know, and and how to make those work to your advantage and their their strengths, their weaknesses, that's a great skill, right? Yes, but I'm also mixing knowledge in there at the same time. So, what could end up happening is, like, even though, like, I may be trying to focus mostly on, say, .NET Core, I'm getting tangled up, I'm, I'm not doing it properly, and even though I know 
you know, you could say, I could say that I've got the knowledge of the unit test. Like we know that's a skill. We know that if you aren't unit testing upfront, it gets real hard to add that in later. Mm-hmm. Even if you have been a long time unit test practitioner, right? Okay. But I, okay. Okay. Let's take a step back though, because that depends on what your goal is for this side project too, though. Like when you were talking about this at the beginning, I was thinking back to a lot of times where, uh, you know, I'll pick up the JavaScript framework du jour and, you know, there's this one particular type of app that I just kind of like use as my, my guinea pig framework, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like think of the to do MVC app, right? Where, you know, you're just rewriting the same thing in every framework just to, cause you're not trying to focus on the functionality of the project. You're trying to focus on like, Hey, how does this framework work? What are, what are its advantages? Right. And so if your goal is to learn those other things, then yeah, great. You know, who cares if you skipped out on the unit test because that's not what you're trying to gain, right? Yep. I just think we need to be careful with that because sometimes you can let those other things slip. And when you let them slip, then you end up codifying or building them into muscle memory. So if you start like skimping on your bad variable names and bad abstractions, like those mm-hmm. things can tend to slip when you're in, uh, you know, at the big game, when you're in the flow working, like those bad habits can kind of seep back in. Well, one thing that we do in practice, like, because I do TDD pretty much all day, every day, is what we call pretty much what you call a spike, right? It's like, hey, we're just going to throw some stuff together, exploratory, try to figure something out. But when we're done, we're going to scrap everything that we have and take back with us the knowledge of what we learned and then do things right, right? Mm-hmm. Right like test first, do all the things, right? And that way you kind of get best of both worlds. You fast track to figuring out the thing, and then you go back and do it with good practice. So that's interesting. Uh, so Will does pair programming, and, and what's really interested about that is that I always wondered, right? Do you just start with a unit test and no matter how crappy your code gets as you go, you're just going to live with it. But I, I like hearing that, that you guys do that. There is the ability to just go figure something out, take notes of what, what worked and then throw it all away and do it clean. Like that's, that's interesting. Um, I know that was an aside to what you were talking about, Joe. I, I, I'm I'm sort of more on outlaw side with this. Like I, I love the idea that you practice certain skills, right? Like uh, we've talked about interviews before, right? Like if you're going to go interview with Amazon or Google or something like that, you better pick up, you know, cracking the coding interview and you better practice and you better learn algorithms and you better learn data structures because I guarantee you're going to get hammered on it, right? So with that in mind, you start with a goal. You know that you need to know your data structures. You know that you need to know certain algorithms. You know that you need to think about things in a mathematical way when approached with a problem, right? So that makes sense to me. I I think what it all boils down to is how well-defined is your goal, right? If you're wanting to play with Elasticsearch, and by the way, you haven't had a chance to really look at Docker, but this is a perfect time to be able to get it sprinkled in. Like, I don't see that as a bad thing, you know? It, I, it just really depends on what your focus is. Well, I mean, we have talked about this, though, and um, in past episodes, where I think even jokingly referring back to some of the projects that your side projects you've done, Alan, where you can sprinkle in too many unknown technologies and then you fall into rabbit holes down one or more of those. So I do think it's wise and important to limit those 
uh, you know, new kind of technologies until you feel like you really have a grasp on it before you start bringing, introducing other ones because, you know, to avoid those kind of pitfalls, right? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I know in my, uh, my example here with the, uh, the Docker, um, one thing I noticed is uh, because I kind of did it from ground up with the focus on the side project, I've got a couple containers now that I've, I'm able to talk to. I've got three containers and they're all talking and they're all on the same network. It's awesome. But I know that there's this like Docker Compose thing that I should have used to kind of put this together. But I kind of, you know, squeeze this stuff together based on a couple Stack Overflow answers, right? So I'm not really doing things in a great way. And so if I were to say like, hey, guys at work, um, here's my new project or whatever, like there's a good chance I'm going to kind of bring those you know, not so great learnings in and do it wrong. Whereas if I had started with a, a Docker course or a Docker book, then I probably would have done things in, in a lot easier way. See, but I, I disagree. I think that's fine, though. It yeah. sounds like you're setting like too high an expectation on it, though. I feel like it's okay to iterate on the learning process. Yeah, I mean, so I'll give a perfect example of something that you just said that I went through the same exact thing with, with Elasticsearch. Because you'll look at it and you'll find, oh, there's this Docker image out there with Elastic. Cool, let me add it. Oh, well, I need it to be able to talk to this. Well, let me add that. Well, how do I make these things talk? Well, they're not on the same network, per se, unless I force them all on the same IP. Well, this doesn't make sense. Well, how do people do it? Oh, there's this thing called Docker Compose. So it's like a natural progression, right? And then, and then by the way, you're going to go figure out Docker Compose, and then you're going to find out, wait, this is not what the industry does. They use Kubernetes. And so then you're going to go from Docker Compose to Kubernetes, and then at some point they're going to be like, well, maybe Kubernetes isn't what we should do. We should do Docker Swarm. Not saying that's the path, but what I'm saying is I don't feel like the path that you took is wrong for what you tried to do, right? Like maybe you do introduce those things and maybe they aren't perfect, but guess what? It was a step in the right direction. I think we've all talked about the fact that programming and even learning should be an iterative approach, right? You're not going to get that knowledge and those skills without first taking some stumbles along the way, at least in my opinion. I. I but what if you stumble and you never get up? Like you stumble, you do things the wrong way and you never get back to that. Have side you ever project. done that? Now get back to the side project. Now that's different. That's it, that's almost not fair. <laughs> but that's but, also why community is important too, right? Like whenever you're learning, you try. Well, I guess I guess if you're kind of like the stereotypical developer, you might be doing that in your own silo. But having like a network of people, like the Slack channels, right, or Twitter, to bounce things off of, like, hey, I'm stuck, like infinitely stuck. Can you help me out? Like that's why that stuff's important. Where you like fall down to that degree. Yeah, absolutely. Coworkers are another are another great case of that. So I think that's really important. Like that's like kind of like all those soft skills or anything that's you can't easily quantify. I think you got to bring other people in. Which I mean, I've got like an introvert. You know, I'm literally a card carrying introvert. This is like an introvert <laughs> pen right here, a little turtle. Uh, but sorry, it's such a, it's such a what what you're saying though is I don't know that I actually agree with the whole mixing incentives encourage it can encourage bad habits okay maybe it's true but i don't i, I feel like not doing that kind of keeps your boundaries too far in right like i feel like you don't get to expand your boundaries if you're not willing to take some of those those mistakes and those leaps just to find out hey what what does this do or, or again i think it really depends on what your goal was at the outset totally. if, if your goal was i need to learn .net core then you should trash everything else not have a docker container you shouldn't be doing anything except working in you know visual studio or visual visual studio code and trying to hammer out some .net core stuff right 
Yeah. So I, yeah, I think you're totally spot on. Like definitely side projects are good and just a matter of what you want. But I think you got to be really careful about making sure you understand what your true goals are and actually working towards those. It's like so, if you're doing a .NET Core project to learn .NET Core and you spend a half hour of your two hours messing with CSS, then either you cared about more CSS more than you thought or you're not training effectively. Okay, so I think that's the real takeaway here. As when we talk about being careful with your side projects is to set realistic expectations of what you want to get out of that side project. And hold yourself to it. Right. Don't and bite be careful off with codifying bad practices. Because have you ever have you ever cussed in front of your grandma? Probably. <laughs> yeah, like me once. Once. <laughs> Just once. Did she knock the but, taste out of your mouth afterwards? Or? <laughs> it's because I built up some bad habits, right? Uh, and something happened. I slipped and my bad habit made it out somewhere I didn't think it was going to. That's uh, true. Man, I'm just having a hard time. Like, I, I know where you're going with this bad habit I thing, know. though. But I'm having a hard time applying that to code, though, because, man, like, God, some of the best stuff you learn happens because you went outside your intended zone, right? Like you stumble across but, something. But that like, sounds like knowledge to me. You're talking about learning things like new concepts, new paradigms, new ways of doing things. Like that's kind of the knowledge to the house. I'm talking about the things where like I need to get something done. I want to be able to type, type, type and solve my problem and, and be finished with it. I'm talking about the skill side of the house like, right now. I mean, let's be real though. Right? How many times have prototypes made it to production? Right, like something that's supposed um, to throw away. Al- Alan, you got some experience with this? Every, every time. <laughs> and if you're not disciplining those prototypes, you got sometimes garbage code out there supporting I mean, real life production. But that's prototypes, though. I, I, I feel like that's different than a side project, though. If we're yeah, talking about a prototype. Yeah. Like when I think of side projects, that's like something in my spare time I want to learn, uh, you know, or maybe maybe a skill you want to practice. Like uh, search, search, you know, you want to write a binary tree or a linked list or something like that, just, you know, to dust some of the cobwebs off of your head, right? And make sure you can do it, right? Like, am I going to take the time to, like, make sure to have proper unit tests and abstractions away just for something like that? In like, a prototype? No. Probably not. Now, if you're asking me to prototype an, a, a con, you know, an application that might query a third-party system to retrieve data from it that, you know, could be... Uh, you know, might fit the form of an existing application. Maybe that one would be structured different. I, I could see that happening. Might be some relevant experience in house there. Might be. Yeah, I mean, it, so to your point, yes, sometimes prototypes made to production. Actually, I'd say 75, 75% yeah, of the time it happens. But I will also, to a certain degree, argue for the business and say, does this thing do what it needs to do? If the thing is valuable enough and it warrants revisiting at some point in the future, there's nothing that says you can't iterate to make the thing better, right? So, again, I, I mean, I know that we've just beat this thing into the ground at this point, and I think the part is is we're all torn on it, right? Because I think that we all have gotten to where we are in our careers, which, by the way, all of us are are very good developers, or, or we at least see each other as very good developers, Um we've all gotten here because we explore and we're curious and, and, and it's almost like, why do we get called for support from our family on their computers? Right. It's not because we're, we're not computer support people, but we are those people that curious enough that when something happened to us, we learned everything about it. And then when somebody calls us, we're like, Oh yeah, you just need to go do that. Right. And so that's kind of where I'm going with, with that thing. So point taken. Be careful. 
Yeah. Like, point taken. Bad habits are, are very real. Yeah, they and are. You can see evidence of it. Like if you like, you know, any sort of like little something that you do, it tends to get kind of built in because your brain is super lazy. It yeah. loves shortcuts. It loves stereotypes. It's biases. And a lot of those can be good for some things, right? It lets you take shortcuts on thinking. It lets you think at that higher level. But if you get some bad stereotypes or bad biases or bad habits kind of built in, then you can start making bad mistakes without even realizing that you're making decisions because they're not conscious decisions. They're not deliberate. They're the things that just kind of fly out of your fingers when you're thinking about the business problem. And that's yeah, why I, I think, think we just need to be careful. I think I would, gentlemen. You kind of got to practice how you play, right? Or at least try to most for the most part. I'm somewhat there. I feel like Joe should have had his his um, laser pointer so that he could have just flashed it in our eyes and been like, yeah. "Shut up, Pete." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know. Um, from learning guitar, I know like a lot of times they would tell you like, kind of learn something slow, learn it right, and then you speed it up. But that first time, it was always like, learn it slow, learn it right. They don't say like, <laughs> you know, play it double time, and then eventually when you go to play it, you know, half speed, it'll be fine. Like they always they emphasize getting it right first because. Once you speed up, like those habits that you built up doing it slow are what's going to come out because your brain doesn't think like one, three, four, next string. One, three, it thinks like A minor scale. Blah. The rest is generated. It's, so there's a couple of really valid. good books on Blink and uh, Power of Habit in particular. Cool. And hey, uh, you know, Power of Habit, uh, like the whole book was really about how to break bad habits and how to replace them with good habits. And they actually, they kind of boiled down to one simple thing. They basically said there's like the cue, there's the action, and there's the reward. So if you want to replace that bad habit, you have to recognize the cue. So if you have a bad habit of like, say, um, you know, writing crappy code, <laughs> you got to <laughs> recognize the cue might be you're under a deadline or, you know, you don't have, a, a, you know, all the requirements up ahead of time. And so you want to recognize whatever that trigger is that's kind of getting you to do this bad thing in this situation. And you want to try and replace that with the desired activity. And then, hey, treat yourself. Hmm. Cool. Now, there's a whole book about it, but there you go. 30 seconds. Cool. I don't know why the, like, algorithm nerd in me was, like, thinking Q-U-E-U-E. -E -E right. When said Q. <laughs> yeah. I was yes. like, oh, he means, like, pool Q. <laughs> 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 yep so hey um thank you for all the reviews this time we got a ton of them we really appreciate it it really helps us out a lot and uh, we really thank you for it and uh, if you want to leave us a review you can go to codingblocks.net slash review and you find a bunch of links you don't have to install itunes there's lots of other ways to do it like Podchaser or stitcher and we really appreciate it so thank you so much hey and while you're there you know we've talked about um earlier there was a conversation about stickers that came up and uh, you know, if you check it out or like uh, if you're watching the video here, you can see some new designs that we've made up. And uh, if you go to www.codingblocks.net slash swag, you can send us a self-addressed stamped envelope and we can send some stickers your way, including the lovely new layout. You got a Vanna white this thing. Yeah. I right? don't think I'm quite as pretty, but you know, um, <laughs> now Alan, don't talk bad about yourself. I know that's just wrong. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's head into my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right, so in the last episode survey, we asked, do you pay attention to third-party licenses? And your choices were, yes, because my company forces me to. Yes, because it's a good habit. No, wait, you actually read those things? And lastly, no, wait, uh, am I supposed to? 
All right, so we're going to let our guest go first. Ooh. <laughs> all right. Uh, Price is right rules. You oh, know yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Let me take yes because my company forces me to with 57%. No way, man. 57%. You are crazy. You haven't listened to the show enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, Alan, don't be rude. Uh, this is going to end in a foot race, isn't it? Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll win that just so you know. Wait, wait, oh, wait. wait. Here, wait we go. Here we go. <laughs> so, so what you got, Joe? What, what do you think this one is? Uh, I think uh, no way am I supposed to with 30%. And I'm, I'm wagering that most people are doing web development nowadays and they don't really think about it too much because they're not distributing. Yeah. And I, you know what, I, I'm trying to remember back, we had some sort of episode where we asked how big the company was that people work for. Mm-hmm. The smaller the company, the less they think about this stuff, I honestly believe. So I'm going to say no wait, you actually read those things. And I'm going to go with 35%. 35%. Alan says you actually read those things, 35%. Joe says I'm supposed to with 30%. And Will goes with, because my company forces me to, with 57%. If I have those numbers right. Those are correct. That's correct. Ding, ding, ding. We got a winner. It's me. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Alan takes it home. Nice. (laughs) You actually read those things? 38% of the vote. That's scary. And look, guys, that's really scary. <laughs> we we did an episode on this. I don't remember what it was. Episode seven three. or so. Three? Man. No, look. I don't know. It's not three. It's definitely <laughs> we, not three. Yeah. Don't listen to three. I mean. <laughs> but no, wait. You can listen to three. We won't rehash it here, but if you don't pay attention to them, you probably should. I mean, just look, if you work for a small company and you're writing code and you're just pulling in libraries willy-nilly, at some point... Somebody else could own your code. Yeah, you could be getting your company into some serious uh, legal trouble if you're not paying attention to it. Yeah, it, it's real. Uh, it, it's, and no license is not okay. No, no. Li- put a license in there. If if there is a library that you're using or some sort of third-party utility that you're bringing in and they have multiple licenses, choose the one that you want to, to use with your product. And if you use anything like uh, GNU, and take a hard look because a lot of times that means you have to open source your code. So yeah, there's there's a lot of nuances there, and that scares me a little bit. What was the uh, second answer? Probably Joe's. No, am I supposed? To? Yeah, no. Uh, everyone missed it. Yes, because it's a good habit. Really? Wow. Yeah. All right. Twenty eight percent of the vote. That's surprising. Yeah. That really is surprising. So so like more than fifty percent were split. Like, you know, th- those were the, the largest percentages of the vote, right? And they're split. Literally in half between <laughs> yes, yes and because no. because it's a good habit. Not because I have to, but just because it's a good habit. And no, and it's a bad habit because <laughs> I'm supposed to? Wow. So it's a good thing that we're talking about habits here. <laughs> right? Get in the habit of looking at the license. As a matter of fact, like I know, I know you do, I do, Joe, you probably do. I'm assuming, Will, you probably do too. Like if I'm looking up something that I'm going to use, the very first thing I do is search the page for license. And if it doesn't come up, then I go to the code and say, where is the license file? And if it's not there, I'm like, yeah, I don't really think I can use it. Or I'll contact the author and be like, yo, dude, can you add a license? 
because we can't we can't use this. Better get pull request, dude. Yeah, right. No, that's, <laughs> oh, a, that's yeah, a good point. That's a good idea. Uh, Why I not, never right? even thought about that. <laughs> Apache license. Here we go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> that's my tip for the week. Writing <laughs> <laughs> uh, the show as we go. Uh, All right. So uh, for this episode survey, we ask: Do you participate in open source projects? And your choices are. Yes, but only my own projects. Or yes, but only when I'm trying to beef up the resume. Or yes, but it's documentation, not code. Yes, but I only participate in projects owned by others. Or yes, I have some of my own projects and I also participate in projects owned by others. And lastly, man... I'd love to, but dang, who has the time? This episode is sponsored by Airbrake.io. When your website experiences an error, Airbrake alerts you in real time and gives you all the details you need to fix that bug fast. I noticed that Airbrake had an open source.net library, so I dropped the example code from GitHub into one of my old .net websites. And the site worked great when it first launched, but... You know, I was pretty much done with it and I hadn't really touched it in years and I knew that there were errors and I couldn't reproduce them and I thought maybe Airbrake would be able to make it easier for me to see a pattern. And it did pretty much immediately. Once the exceptions were aggregated, it was really easy to see that there were only a few different types of exceptions and that they came in interesting waves. And what I kind of figured out was that somebody was actually uh, automating and doing some repeat calculations using my web services directly. They were skipping the UI where I was incorrectly doing some validation. And they weren't the greatest speller. So there were a few little mistakes that I had not made that they were making when they were doing these uh, you know, thousands of repeat calls. So now I handle that problem better and, and traffic wasn't much of a burden. So uh, everything's great and they might still be doing it now. Awesome. So right now, Coding Blocks listeners can try Airbrake free for 30 days Plus, get 50% of their first three months on the startup plan. To get started, visit airbrake.io slash codingblocks. That's airbrake.io slash codingblocks. All right, so continuing on with our conversation here, uh, let's get into deliberate practice. And what does that mean? I kind of dogged on side projects a little bit, even though I do still think they're really good, but just not the most effective way to to practice skills. So the question is, what, what is the most effective way? And uh, what the kind of um, the, the general consensus is right now is that deliberate practice is the best way to advance skills. And what they mean by that is basically just a results-driven feedback loop that requires focused attention. And so, like, the example I, I gave in my talk was that playing your favorite song guitar is not deliberate practice. But if you record yourself... And you grade yourself on the various skills involved, like, say, chord changes or your legato, your staccato. Uh, and then you you slice it up, you measure it, see how well you did, and then devise specific practices around those particular areas. That's deliberate practice. So Another it's example all- is like Karate Kid, Wax On, Wax Off. Mm-hmm. He was practicing specific movements that were later incorporated into, like, the real the real thing. But they weren't quantifying it. What you're saying is the key element, right? Is actually measuring your your results after the, right. after doing the practice. Okay. I mean, can you still get the value out of it without the measurement, though? That's a good question. I think it, like the the idea behind measuring it is just to kind of make sure that you're you're doing it right. So if you can kind of get the sense that you're doing it well enough and that you're maintaining like kind of the correct form, 
then I think it's okay. I think same with kind of like weightlifting is a good example where like it's really easy to have bad form when you're say doing a squat or a deadlift. But I think that once you kind of get that form down right, I think it's, you know, you could probably get away with not having a spotter there or, or doing that stuff on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there's value to doing that. And, you know, realistically, this stuff's hard to do, you know, with other people. So I, I think that's kind of our only option. But what does measurement mean in this sense, though? Are we talking about like, you know, understanding the space time complexity of the problem that you just solved and trying to better that? Or are we talking about like, well, you know, I solved this problem and I wrote these 10 unit tests and it passes those and that's good enough. Like, what does it mean? Yeah, a couple different things. So if you're doing an X for Y, I could say like, I'm going to do level four JavaScript programs focusing on uh, fundamentals and I'm going to do it for 20 minutes. I'm going to set a Pomodoro timer. I'm going to count how many I did correctly. You know, the first time seven, second time six, third time nine, you know, I should be seeing that stuff go up and to the right. So the measurement there is my number of problems. Now, if it's something like a soft skill, it gets a little bit tougher. But what I could do is like do some sort of like a little pet project, send it over to my buddy Will and say, hey, Will, I'm not going to ask you how my project is because that's a a crappy question. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, how's my architecture or how are my variable names or am I getting my intent across? Um, how are my dependencies managed? You know, is this, how does this look? I want to ask those kind of specific questions and I want them to grade me on those specific asks. And so that's another way of measuring things that are kind of harder to quantify. An example I like here is um, there are actually like a ton of like writer groups out there on the internet, like, like for people who want to get better at writing. And one interesting thing they'll do is a, a lot of times have like um, kind of tasks or quests for a week. So like one week might be, hey, write a hundred word uh, action thriller story that doesn't use any weak words or doesn't use pronouns or doesn't do something else or, or they'll have some sort of theme. They'll have some sort of goal there with that writing. A bunch of people will submit it. They'll mix it all up and basically everyone kind of cross does some cross feedback where they focus on the one thing. And of course, if you got some other feedback in there, you can slide that in. But the goal is really just to kind of focus the exercise and the measurement on that one thing. So it's not great to say, how's my project? If you really want to focus on that one thing. I like that. And uh, they got a couple rules um, for the, for the uh, deliberate practice to say it's intentional, which is saying that you know what your goal is. It's not just to write good code. It's going to be more focused than that. Um, you want it to be improving appropriate. So something that you can actually get better at, uh, responsive. Now, this is what I really like. What they mean by responsive is that you get fast feedback on it. So the example that I like here is uh, something like resharper or a good IDE, where as soon as you type that like unconventional, uh, variable name, you go to the next line, boom, squiggle marks right there immediately telling you as soon as you make the mistake that you should go back and fix it. Because it's so much more valuable to do the right thing and encode that success than it is to find out a week later when, you know, someone emails you back and lets you know, hey, that's not the standard for Java. Um, finally, it's repetitive. So it should be an exercise that you could do more than once and see how you do. And then uh, the fifth rule I really like, it should be not fun. That's a hard one for me to wrap my head around. The, the not fun? Yeah. I can see that with you because like, kind of like what I what I know about you is that you've got kind of a mind for practicing. I think that you get a lot of fun out of seeing things go up and to the right. Yeah, because I feel like that's the thing that keeps you motivated, keeps you wanting to practice. Like if I'm not having fun, I'm more than likely not going to do it. You know what yeah, I mean? And I think the contrast, like the what I kind of got out of them saying it shouldn't be fun is that you shouldn't be slipping into flow. 
If you guys are familiar with the notion of flow, it's basically that feeling where you like start typing on the keyboard, you take a sip of coffee at nine in the morning and you put the coffee cup down and like, what the heck? It's dark outside because I've been coding for eight hours straight. I, I closed, you know, more tickets than I thought I was going to be able to. And I, I feel great and energized and refreshed afterwards. And it's basically that kind of state of mind where your brain is occupied. So it's solving challenging problems. So you're not getting bored but it's not too hard that you're having to really struggle with it. So things just kind of float right out of you and you actually feel good at the end of it. Well, I think I get the intent here though, is a lot of times you skip doing things that just aren't inherently fun to you, right? Like you're not going to go out of your way to learn something that doesn't interest you to a certain degree. Right. (laughs) And so you might be missing out on some of those skills that, that you might not pick up. Like, I mean, have you done a binary sort recently? It, does that sound like fun to a lot of people? Probably not, right? Like if you're if you're interviewing for a job, it's a necessity, right? To him, he <laughs> says, yeah, totally. But I mean, it's it's one of those things that I I think the purpose of this is it's easy to go after things that are in your wheelhouse. It's easy to go after things that you would typically go after anyways. But if you're truly trying to better yourself all around then you also need to look at those things that like big O notation, right? Like why does it matter to, to people, right? It's not something that's really all that for me, it's not fun to look at. Like I've watched the Stanford YouTube videos. I did the stuff in college and it's one of those things that you really have to get back into completely to, to really drive those points home. And it's just not fun. It's almost like a drudge, right? Like I I, I think, Three of us, or maybe four of us, signed up for the course at one point, and we all dropped out after like three weeks because it was like, man, this is a lot of work, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I oh, think, you're talking about? I think it was a Coursera algorithms, yeah, uh, program out of Stanford. Yeah, and it was heavy duty. Like it was one of those things where you're like, yeah, this. You know, I thought I was going to get to just play around and learn some stuff, but no, they want me to do homework, <laughs> and this is this is. Yeah. I don't want to do homework. <laughs> like, what's uh, that? I think that the, the kind of the problem with getting in that sort of flow and kind of having too good of a time with it is that uh, it generally like they, what they're saying is that if you're having a really good time actually doing the thing and not you're not having a good time because of the outcome, then you're probably kind of in that flow where things aren't too challenging. And so you're kind of able to rely on kind of your instincts and that muscle memory that you built up. And it feels good to kind of solve those problems and, and get those wins because it's, you know, you're, you're hitting all the targets, right? And it feels good. So maybe- but you're not pushing on your limits. You're not kind of pushing on the boundaries of your abilities. So you're not moving forward and you're kind of stagnating. So it could be great for like getting through the work week. Like it would, it would be wonderful to be in flow Monday through Friday all the time. But what they said is basically it's not an effective way to advance your skills. So it might be a better way to phrase it then instead of saying that it, it should not be fun, that it should be hard. Yeah, Maybe. I think, but we don't, we don't want to go too far too. Cause um, one, one thing that they kept pushing back on is like, you don't want to just dive into the deep into something. Uh, and that's because it's really easy when you're way out of your depth to do things in a wrong way. And so like an example I like here is like wakeboarding. If you've ever done wakeboarding and you've never done it before, like, or, you know, maybe even like learning to dive, something like that. You don't want to go off the high dive, the very, the highest, because you don't really know what you're doing. You haven't built up the skills. And it's probably going to hurt when you smack that water. <laughs> And so if you can kind of build up to something in a way that is better aligned with your current skill level, then it's going to go faster and be smoother and you're less likely to codify bad habits. That makes sense. Yeah. One feature I wish there was like a number six where like they include like the stickiness factor and like you want to keep coming back to it. Right. Yeah. That would be like a cool thing to like measure. Like say, for example, when you're lifting weights, right? 
the stronger you get, the more your body starts to change it. Like it keeps you wanting to come back to the gym and keep keep improving. Yeah, I like that. And um, one thing too to kind of to contrast to like the scrimmage or the or the side project thing too is like it can be a lot easier to pick up on a practice than it can be on a side project. If you go three weeks without touching that side project or six weeks or you know you don't have a lot of time to it, it can be hard to get back into it depending on how you left off. But if you are doing JavaScript level four problems for for twenty minutes, you know the barrier to entry there is having twenty minutes. You know, I almost equate it to video games. Like it's it's kind of an odd analogy, but Video games that I play nowadays, which I don't get to play that much, it's usually things that I can pick up and do fast and then put down, right? Like like people that go and play uh, Elder Scrolls or Oblivion that are like 600 plus hour games, that those hold no interest to me because I know I'm never going to get there. And, and even when I play it, I have fun, right? Like somebody will buy me the game and I'll play it for two hours and I'm like, well, that was a lot of fun. I'll never play it again. Right. Like, like it's seriously like that. Whereas if it's a, a basketball game or if it's call of duty, I know I can jump on play for 30 minutes, have fun, and then I'm done. Right. And so it's kind of similar to what you're talking about with the skill is you get in there, you had something tangible that you walked away with, right? Like you, you feel like you accomplished something. Whereas sometimes side projects, honestly, can just be sort of frustrating, right? Like you look at it, and you're like, man, I suck because <laughs> I tried to do this and you know, I got so far, uh, you know, .NET Core was a perfect example. I got into it and I was like, well, if I'm going to make a real world app, then I need people to be able to log in. They need to create accounts. Well, I'm not just going to create an account. I need to figure out the identity service. So I'm I mean, it's got to be it's got to be secure. I got to right. secure these right. identities. And wait, now there's there's J tokens and you can do things. Like, wait a second. So now I got to go into OAuth. Like literally before I even get anything done, I've got thirty other things. We don't I'm even like, know what we're authenticating to yet. <laughs> but but you got to have Facebook, Google, uh, GitHub. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's, so yes, it's I, I like this. I like the fact that if you do focus on the skill you have something that you actually feel like you accomplished, right? Like it's a task that you can walk away and say, done, you know? And if I want to come back and polish up on it later, I can. And it's not that huge barrier to entry. In the future, Alan, just use Okta. You get all that stuff for free. Which one? Okta. Okta? Mm-hmm. I don't think you've heard of that. Is yep. this, another okay. this is why those okay, peers are so important. <laughs> so how can I practice this stuff though? Yeah. And uh, we mentioned a couple of these, like the X for Y categories, um, there's uh, one I really like, the Regex crossword. I think I gave it as a, an example of, or my tip of the week a while back where it actually kind of ri- lines up different uh, cr- uh, regex on different axes and you've got to find the commonality between those two regexes in like a crossword type format. You know, that's a kind of extreme example. Same with co- Code Golf. But Code Wars, I think, is like the ultimate kind of X for Y here because I can say JavaScript level four, 20 minutes, count how many I do at the end. And once that bottleneck gets to be my typing speed, then I can go ahead and up the level on that. And um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I am still kind of mixing things there because like on one hand, like I'm talking about solving the problems. On the other hand, I'm talking about learning JavaScript. And so you do still have to be careful about that. But I do think you need to learn, you know, your language really well before you can really get to that level with the algorithms. Because if you're taking that two seconds to look up like the syntax for slice or splice or map or filter or is this capitalized or not, if you don't have that, that, um, kind of uh, implicit declarative language built up in that higher level thinking, then you're constantly going to be tripping on stuff and you're not going to be able to kind of unlock your potential to really fly on that stuff. So I think you've got to have the basics down. And I think those X for Y things like Code Wars are a great way to do that. One thing that's neat though, looking at the list you have here, like Code Wars and Hacker Rank, you know, the usual suspects is like, these sites are, these sites are sort of focused on like writing code 
right? But are there any sites that you can go to or like any resources for like learning how to become a better code reader, right? We spend like an absorbent, an orbit amount of time like reading code, right? But how often do we practice like becoming better at catching up and picking up context oh, that's on code you didn't one. write? That's an interesting concept. Yeah, I really like that. You imagine if I like if if I wanted to get better at understanding code, like one side project or one type of exercise I might do is like I find some sort of code online that's not too long, and I read it, and then I try to explain in like one sentence or you know some sort of you know like tight, concise thing, like exactly what's going on. Well, the I think that just by trying to do that really help. The the regex crossword puzzle that you mentioned though that is an example because you have to be able to read the the regex and, and understand it. Now, how you would apply a similar kind of concept to something outside of just regular expressions, someone more creative than me will have to come up with that. Hey, that's a tough problem, but it's an it. interesting one though, because that's actually where resourcefulness and people's thought process comes into play. I will say like code wars, like when I did it initially, it, it was fun, but it also frustrated me because after I got into it, like, my mind is trained to, you know, validate the inputs, validate the outputs, you know, do these things, try and try and do things nice and neat. And, and it turned out it was all about who can write the most creative way to do this entire thing in one line. Right. And, and, and it almost got to the point where it was like, man, I don't really feel like I'm getting that much. I don't feel like I'm getting that much useful takeaway from this. Right. Like, don't get me wrong. It was cool to look at some of the answers and be like, Oh, I'd have never thought about doing it that way, but I would have killed anybody that would have put that in my real code because you can't understand it. Right. The fact is, if you saw that in source code somewhere, you'd be like, okay, let me go do a get blame and find out who wrote this so that I can go yell at them. Right. (laughs) Because it doesn't make sense. And so I think you have to be careful. I, I love these resources because it's a good way to get practice and it's a good way to s- learn how to solve problems, right? Because they'll throw a problem up there. But, you know, just be aware that sometimes, you know, just the way that they get to the outcome isn't as important as just understanding the thought process of how you should get there, you know? Yeah, and um, one thing I like about Code Wars is you can actually tag solutions and vote them up. So like when you solve problems, I, I don't know how new this is, but if you solve a problem, go look at the solutions, people will tag them as best practices or novel solution or shortest solution and kind of vote them up. And I really like to see um, other people's solutions. And sometimes, uh, particularly um, Dance to Die and um, and Robert have really creative solutions that are always different from how I think about it. And so I get a lot out of that. But I totally agree that if you're just focused on like, say the lines of code or getting that problem done in that 20 minute span, then you're probably taking some shortcuts to get there that are codifying those bad habits. Right. So you just got to be careful about, you know, slicing up and making sure that you're addressing the things you actually want to get better on. Cool. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about soft skills. Like I think communication is really important. We didn't talk about it too much, but if I can express my ideas to my coworkers and, uh, you know, my managers, if I can express an idea to them, eloquently and concisely i can say one sentence and they just get it and they understand and we don't have to have a two-hour meeting or if i can drop just the right comment at just the right time or write just the right email there's immense business value to that to getting everyone on the same page very easily and so communication is a skill i'm particularly interested in of course you know the podcast is is another reason why i'm interested in this and it's another avenue of me trying to kind of get better at it but i do think that stuff is part of being a a better programmer at least to me yeah, I don't know if you've heard, but our communication skills at scribing triangles and graphs 
We are amazing at it. They're off Oof. the chart. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> like, like, yeah. like, I see what you did there. I like that. <laughs> That's good. Another outlet that you don't have listed is like participating <laughs> in hackathons, like showing up and offering your development skills for somebody trying to build a product with like a team of complete strangers. It's also another way to kind of work those soft skills muscles and also get some like gratification out of it as well from a technical perspective. I like that. I honestly think that for developers, a lot of times soft skills are overlooked a lot. Like it's the thing that they put the least amount of effort into. And honestly, if there's one thing that will hold most people back in their careers, it's probably this right here. You can be the most amazing programmer on the planet, but if you can't communicate or if you're hard to deal with or you're brash or you just, you, you act like you're better than everybody else, it, at some point that is going to limit you. At some point that's going to hold you back. And granted, there's going to be exceptions to the rule, but being able to communicate and being able to work with others is huge, just immense in, in what it can do for your career. Cool. And another site that I can think of that would probably fall sort of under do X for Y as well as soft skills is um, exorcism. So exorcism is cool because it has these exercises, but you can also have people who are, have like expertise in that particular language or framework give you feedback and say, hey, this is sort of not idiomatic. You kind of want to try to do things this way and that way. And you can kind of iterate and learn that way from it's like crowdsourced code reviews in like a gamified way. It's pretty cool. Yeah, no, exorcism, buddy, uh, wait, uh, exorcism.io? Yep, exorcism.io. Oh, so like exercise, not exorcise. Mm-mm, ex- like exercise, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was like, you know, <laughs> getting the evil out. All right, got it. Uh, our buddy, um, uh, Dan Sedai, um actually did uh, a thing on interviewing.io, which is a, a site where you can actually practice interviewing with a person. And they'll give you sample problems and you kind of like work through it with them and they push you, they, they do some questions. And then they give you the, the video at the end with their feedback and say, hey, this part didn't like work on this, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that's a, a really cool kind of service too. And, uh, you know, like kind of talking about the scrimmage example, like you could definitely argue that the best way to practice interviewing is to go interview. But if you like, say you live in Seattle or somewhere, you don't want to necessarily burn those <laughs> learning experiences. You don't want to burn those companies that you actually want to work for practicing right so it's you don't want to go out to the microsoft's or the amazon's or, or whoever else is around your area the best companies and practice on them right those are the goals you know depending on what you want and so uh, i like the idea of being able to practice those sort of things in isolation and work with a service so you're not actually taking you know six hours off work to go practice an interview this is pretty cool how, really how do you sign up to be an interviewer do you know say what oh how do you sign up to be an interviewer oh i don't know Oh, sorry, I know um, there's a, a website someone told me about called Carrot. I think that where you can actually sign up to to be an interview for other companies where like you're actually like a kind of admin, okay. uh, like a almost like a test giver. And then they actually pay you per kind of interview that you run. And you turn the videos over. I think I found it on their FAQ. You just send an email to like this address and they'll get yeah, in touch with what you. What do I need? Yeah, that's interesting. Sending email now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Cool. So uh, another couple of ideas I have were basically just around static analysis. Um, and that really, I was just thinking more like this, the resharper will kind of give you the squeaky lines and say like, hey, this could have been a link statement or hey, if you move this if above here, you can shorten your cyclomatic dependency, whatever, uh, cyclomatic complexity. Um, and you can look at those kind of numbers and and just see what you get. So it's a little loose. I mean, ideally you'd be working with somebody. I mean, that, like ultimately like, it, everything comes back down to you're better off working with somebody. Yeah, but I mean, using those static analysis tools does give you an opportunity where, you know, if you can't, 
or maybe it's like really late in the evening and you, you just don't want to like wake anybody, then at least you could see like, Hey, am I in the zone of pain? Right. Mm -hmm. And it gives you scores, um, right? Like it's quantitative, which is, which is nice. Yeah. And I know for me, you know, I mentioned communication being kind of one of my goals for this year. Another one is just really architecture and kind of writing good maintainable systems that are going to be easy to, to change. And getting practice on that can be really hard, especially if architectural decisions are often made up front in a project and you end up kind of dealing with the after effects, you know, forever after. And so how do you get practice with something like that that's you know, really important but doesn't actually come up that often? It's yeah. kind of like the kicker example at football. I feel like architecture more so than anything, it definitely benefits from like a mentorship and being around other people who've built systems and experienced things. Cause like, it's hard to learn that stuff through osmosis. You kind of got to work with somebody who's sort of been in the trenches, right? You can like read all the Martin Fowler that you want, right? It doesn't resonate as much as working side by side with somebody who's done it before. So true. Uh, there's a book I really like called practice. Perfect. We've got a link down there in the resources section and it's actually 42 tips where they um, took basically their their um, lessons learned kind of teaching and mentoring and, and coaching. And they actually spent a lot of time looking at actual teachers in classrooms and kind of figuring out how those teachers best express the ideas to the students and how they actual, actually like maintain discipline and whatnot as well. And so that book's got like a, a ton of just really great like hard and fast kind of ideas or I don't want to say rules because they're not hard hard and fast rules but just kind of ideas things and one thing they really hammer on over and over again is practicing just about everything like if you're a manager man if you can find someone to work with you and if you've got like a tough conversation you're kind of not wanting to like say like you've got to give someone a bad review or something you've never done that before like man if you could just do like a 10 minute kind of walk through with a, like a, a friend of yours or, or something just kind of practice just do it out there once that second time is going to go so much easier at least that's my own experience with that sort of thing if you can just get one or two little kind of trial runs, like flush out some of the, the stumbling points and life can be so much easier for you. Yeah. I know, I know people that speak at large conferences. I remember, uh, I know Joe, you and I listened to smart passive income and, you know, Pat Flynn from that, like he would stand in front of a mirror and, and do it, you know, many, many times before he went out on stage so that he had it down. Right. Like, and he did it like he was going to do it live. So it, it definitely helps. Yep. And uh, I've got a couple uh, quick rules to just kind of jump in for a little bit of practice. They say the first and most important thing is to identify your goal. And, uh, you know, as a, like has come up quite a bit uh, tonight, it's really important to hone in and really grok and understand what it is you really want. Because it's easy to kind of either not understand what it is you want or to not actually practice towards the thing that you truly desire. So understand your goals and then mapping the relevant skills just means like, say, the, the interviewing example, you might kind of do a little mind map and say, well, there's whiteboarding. There's um, answering tough personal questions like what's your biggest weakness or whatever. There's, um, you know, algorithmic analysis. There's this kind of all sorts of different things that you could probably come up with a list of like 20 things that are involved in, in uh, interviewing. And then after you've mapped those skills, not knowledge, just skills. So even like speaking comfortably is a skill and you're going to want to assess those individually. Sometimes you can kind of lean on um, past experience a little bit. And so I know that there's things in interviews that I have more trouble with than others like rambling. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, one thing I like to saying, uh, identify a a high value target and high value. I I like that way of saying it because sometimes you want to play to your strengths. You know, if you've got uh, a great, 
field goal, like sometimes you want to take that, you know, 80% shot rate to 85, you know, but sometimes you also want to do the opposite. You want to focus on something you're really terrible about because you're going to get bigger gains in that area for your time spent, theoretically. Or else maybe, uh, you know, there's some other reason. So there's a skill that's not necessarily you're that good at or that bad at, but it's high value because maybe it's got some sort of other crossover uh, in your life. So for me, like getting organized would be a good skill to to work on because it would make my wife happier in addition to my boss. <laughs> Wait, what are you thinking about? Well, I, I'm trying to like figure out how to the high value target as it relates to code and and practicing there. So I guess, is that something like, like you mentioned map and slice earlier, like, okay, I want to see how those work or yeah. I was just trying yeah, to that, figure out that's like, like the nuts and the bolts of the language. But then like another thing could be like, what about writing or, or interacting with other people's code? I think that there's a lot of people in there that like when they, as soon as it gets to other people's code, like all the rules go out the window. Cause they don't, really want to change stuff too much or they don't feel comfortable. They don't want to, maybe they don't want to read as much code as they probably should because they just want to focus on the one little additive if statement that they can add to make the the problem, the program, the problem go away. And maybe that's something you want to work on or, or maybe you have a bigger issue with greenfield problems where you start to prototype things and those end up in production. And the whole time you kind of like took little shortcuts to get stuff showing on, on screen. And so maybe you actually, tend to work better with, you know, bugs than you do with greenfield type stuff. Yeah. Or it might be something like fluency. Like, Hey, I want to make sure I'm more fluent whenever I get ready to write a link statement. Right. Instead mm-hmm. of fumbling through and having to Google and figure out all the right keywords to use. Yeah. And links, links a great example. Like if you really know your link stuff, you can use that sort of stuff all over the place. And before you really know link, there's all sorts of crazy like aggregate stuff that you're going to be doing with for loops and, it's just, uh, that's more cognitive weight. That's more stuff you have to think about when, if you can just kind of dash out like a, a two liner to do it and move on, then you're spending more time focusing on the business problems. Y'all proud of me? I knew like a C sharp thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, there's, <laughs> there's Java nice. lambdas. There, there are, are and streams. And they, they confuse the heck out of me. Uh, I've been trying to work with them lately. Yeah, and then, uh, finally you want to design your exercise. It's going to target one thing. We talked about that. And you want to do the exercise and we got a cute little go-to step number two here because we got a little cycle going on. Of course, we want to keep repeating this stuff. So should this list be bad form then? Should we should we like peer review this uh, this pull request and say that, like this is bad form because you used a go-to statement? Yeah, I don't like that go-to statement. <laughs> yeah, what's yeah. up with that? <laughs> uh, I started the list with zero though. Did I get some, some cred there? Definitely. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I was going to give you props for that because even in the article, going back to when we were talking about the four reasons uh, why the uh, 10x developer is controversial, I noticed that those were t- also zero based. So yep. uh, your array counting skills are pretty good. <laughs> we got to work on that go to skill there. Uh, right. <laughs> At least and, uh, give uh, number yeah, two like book, a better label perfect. than just two. That's a magic number. <laughs> well you didn't realize that we were going to review this did you oh man yeah on air code flushing (laughs) (laughs) uh so i mentioned that book uh, practice book perfect that's uh definitely um 
a really good one if you're into mentoring and coaching and you're interested in some like real tangible kind of thoughts on that side of things. And I do think work is the best place to do it because you've already got a bunch of people and you've got a vested interest in everybody doing things and being consistently. So if you could take some time away, even if you don't peer, uh, peer program often and, and do a couple little exercises or get people together and like focus on one or two things like tracking down a bug. I think there's a lot of value of like say me and Alan trying to track down a bug that I would only track down on my own because it's in my area. All of a sudden he's here. Now he's got different tools or different viewpoint on things. And at the same time, he's also getting kind of like a nice little tour of my stuff and the way I, I think about it and the way I kind of debug it. And so it is uh, funny. I just, just for those out there, when when I go to debug a problem, I don't want to hear anything about. I just want to know what the problem is. I don't want anybody to tell me anything about how they've tried to find the problem because I don't want it to cloud my judgment. I want I want to stumble through and figure out, you know, because it, it might have been just one thing that that you know somebody just assumed in one spot that I'm not going to assume or whatever. Right. Like I like to solve the problem from beginning to end. And it's almost like when somebody wants to design a system or something, like I want to know what the problem is. What are you trying to solve? Don't tell me what you want done. Mm -hmm. Tell me what your end result is, what you're trying to look for. And that's, I, I, I love approaching problems that way. And I like for other people to think about them that way too, because somebody will think about something that I didn't think about. Right. Does it also include like people being like, Hey, here's what I tried already before you. Yeah. I don't, want to hear it okay I, it, 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 not 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 up front right like i want to at least take a minute to get my head into it right like mm. tell me what the problem is but don't step me through it because then it's going to take my mind off my natural you know curious whatever it's going to do right i do want to revisit at some point like maybe i don't go through it completely but i at least want to get my head wrapped around it first before anybody starts you know injecting things into my mind. So don't stand over your, your shoulder and say, tried that. Oh, tried that. No, don't do that to me. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm bumping your head with my belly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. All right. Now, now things just got weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. Moving right along. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Sorry. I'm like reliving a manager nightmare right now. <laughs> so eating an apple over my head, popped me in the back of the head with the belly. Oh, man. Hey, Peter. Uh, What's happening? <laughs> 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 oh, man. Uh, yeah, so I, I think we actually covered most of these tips for practicing. We know we talked about um, flow being a little dangerous because skills can stagnate. And uh, one study they actually looked at there was with doctors um, who have the diagnoses to do, and then they validate the diagnoses and, um, you know, looking at, like, tumors and stuff like radiology type things. And, and what they found is actually um, – like a, a lot of the people who look at these things would kind of peak after a certain amount of time where it's like year five, they're like peak diagnosis. And then after that, it kind of trails off. And I think a big part of that is because your brain just loves those shortcuts. And so if you can find a shortcut that works 80% of the time and it's a lot easier than that 85% of the time, then a lot of times it's going to kind of want to fall back into there if you don't got, if you don't have somebody kind of reining you in. So, so wait a minute, is the takeaway here that you don't want a doctor who's been practicing for more than five years? Like, I think that's what Once your doctor has practiced for more than five years, you got to go find another doctor. <laughs> uh, machine learning, I think, uh, pretty sure I heard on the podcast is going to be replacing all the doctors in all the world within like the next, I don't know, six months or so. It is funny though, when you think about it, just from the, just from a pure human perspective, people that are newer at something take more care in getting it done, right? The builder who's building his thousandth house 
is going to take so many shortcuts, like walls aren't going to be completely square, that kind of stuff, right? Like, as opposed to somebody that's just getting started, they're really going to want to do a good job, right? Like, it really does make sense to a certain degree. So I'm I'm changing all my doctors. Hmm. Well, <laughs> as a programmer, like, I know that no program I write is going to be perfect. So I'm probably, like, quicker to jump to that, like, yeah, good enough than, like, a, somebody who's only been programming for, like, two years. It is interesting. I mean, it, it really does. I mean, like, if... if uh, if you were going to go take on a task that you'd never done before, you're probably going to watch 20 YouTube videos. You're going to know every single downfall that could happen, and you're going to plan around all of them. It's going to take you 12 hours to do this 30-minute task, but by God, it's going to be amazing, right? And it's interesting when you think about that. I can put this into a real coding kind of thing. All right. We've all... <clears throat> When we were all learning to code, right? Your first, like, uh, let, let, let's just take it down to like a C-like language, okay? And, uh, you know, you, you're, you're learning loops and for loops, for example, right? And you're really getting that down. And you're using, you, you know, you use them for everything, everywhere. Anytime that you need a loop, you're like, mm, for loop, that's, that's my boy. And then you make your way into like a C-sharp and you're like, Oh man, this for each is amazing. You mean I don't have to worry about the iterator? And then you get lazy and you start using the for each in places where you know what? That for statement would actually be more performant if you used it, but you've gotten kind of lazy and you're like, oh, you know what's going to be good enough? This for each is just going to be good enough. And by the way, that enumerator might actually blow up if you change something because now you change the collection underneath it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, there's you you're definitely right. You get you get sloppy. And, and I think it happens to everybody over time and it's just natural. But, you know, I, I was thinking about some of this stuff as uh, Joe was talking about, like, cause there was the one um, point that he made about like, you know, Hey, don't just ask how the code is ask, ask about specific things though. And it made me feel a little bit better about, you know, there are times where not necessarily from a practice point of view, but just like, you know, I'll look at it from the point of view of like a pull request, like, you know, I'll ask someone specific to either an area of the app or a, or a particular skill set and be like, hey, man, tell me, like, do you think I'm crazy for doing this? And I'll explain like, you know, you know, here, here's the thing. Look, you take a look at it and tell me, is this crazy? Would you do you want to do you want to immediately revoke or, you know, uh, de <laughs> decline this pull re request because of this? Right. So I feel like, you know, that kind of, I don't know, I guess I should think of it as mentoring in that case, but uh, that kind of peer review that, that what Joe's talking about though is kind of along that line maybe. And that's a way that you might be able to incorporate something without it actually being like practice outside of your, um, your day job necessarily, but just like a way that you could incorporate it in as part of your regular routine, right? Yep. That's one thing that's cool about pair programming, you know, is, is as much as it's exhausting, you do shorten that feedback loop a whole lot, right? You can kind of get that litmus check immediately, like if you're going some way, way off in left field. Yeah, and you're encoding that success. Like one example I kind of like there is like sometimes I'll do something like, oh, I think there's a better way to do this, but I don't want to stop what I'm doing right now and look it up. So I'll just kind of do what I can now and I'll take a little to do to do it later and then guess what happens later <laughs> All right now i'm busy I, you know i got to get this checked in so i don't do it and if someone had been there that was more familiar with that area and was able to say hey someone else did that like last week like go check it out right here then we could have encoded the success and the next time that problem comes up i'm more likely to remember that good thing rather than the bad thing that i used to work around it right <clears throat> so i've got a couple tips here for just kind of mentoring we'll go through quick um 
one thing I thought was interesting is the, that they really emphasize making a plan up front and sticking to it. I think that uh, a lot of times they would see, at least when working with teachers, that a lot of times the uh, the practices would actually devolve very early on into talking about the practice itself, particularly about how the practice is like not like real world or not like whatever, or just it kind of devolved and uh, lost focus. Wait a minute. Is this mentoring tips from the point of view of being mentored or mentoring tips from the point of view of mentoring others? Mentoring others. Okay. So if I'm yep. going to mentor others, I need to make a plan. And stick yeah, and to the, it. definitely the onus, like the, the the entire perspective and the practice perfect at least has always been from the perspective of the teacher. Uh, I don't think they really talk too much about like what it meant to be kind of a good people, other than going out and finding a good teacher. Uh, call your th- shots. I thought that was really interesting. Like um, they gave some cool examples there, where like uh, there's they're pairing two people up, like a good salesman and a bad salesman. And then they go into a meeting and the, they come out of it and the, the new salesperson thinks like, oh man, this, this didn't go very well because, you know, we, uh, we got a deal, but it was real rough and it was rocky. It was really awkward. And the, the other salesman is like, I didn't think we were going to get that at all. This is fantastic. This opens a lot of doors. And because the, the new salesperson didn't understand what the kind of problems and situation they were in ahead of time, they didn't understand like the, the goal and they didn't even understand that a good thing was happening when it was. But so how is that, important. what does that mean for call your shots though? I think I'm missing the point. Uh, you want to be upfront with your, your, your kind of your pupil or the person you're pairing with, but like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a simple login form. It's going to be really robust. and It's going to use um, this technology. Okay. So make sure that the person that you're mentoring understands what the goal is. So not just you made your goal, yeah. Okay. So I'm with you. Right. So that's what you were talking about from the sales <coughs> perspective is right. that person didn't understand what his goal was going in. So he didn't know that his outcome was going a particular way. I got it. Yeah. You think like an example there where you got two coders, they're pair programming. First one says like, come on, we're going to write a login page to get together. They write the little page. And at the end of the day, that new programmer might think, well, we used this, you know, kind of technology stack because that's the best for writing login pages. Well, really, they use that technology because that's the one that most coders have experience with or because there was a simple example that they had to, to look at. So they may not understand the reasons behind why things are done. And you can see how they might go and they think like, well, they made this login page in C Sharp because C Sharp's the best. So now they go to start a new Greenfield project. They're like, well, C Sharp's the best. And what really what happened is that decision was made because, you know, for very application-specific reasons. But because that wasn't discussed up, up front and the exercise wasn't planned out ahead of time for specific reasons, like here's why we're working on this thing and here's why we're working on it in this way, then the person left with the wrong imper- uh, interpretation. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, we talked about encoding success. The sooner you can get that success, the sooner you can correct that uh, bad activity, the better. And that also goes along with the, the idea of the get a whistle, which is a really cute chapter. It's basically like a coach like blows the whistle as soon as that bad habit happens. Like you're playing basketball and you got a bad habit of like shooting with one arm, right? Blow that whistle immediately as soon as you start to see that happen because you want to get them to not do the bad thing. And you want them to always do the good thing. You want to encode that success. Cool. Another one of my favorites was actually coming up with a name. And um, they kind of... I think had a harder time coming up with justifications for this in the book because it's kind of not as common to us as programmers who have, uh, you know, lots of experience with abstraction. But I think uh, like when we talk about design patterns and I say, hey, let's uh, implement a factory or, or we need an observer here. 
those are really powerful terms because I say the word observer and you're already thinking about 10 examples where you've used observers and you've seen, and I don't have to try and describe what I mean by, you know, like eye notifications and I, you know, throwing, uh, throwing updates and whatnot. So like just that one word observer is really powerful to you and it lets us communicate at a higher level. So later when I'm looking at a pull request or something, I could say, why didn't you use an observer here? And it kicks off this whole world of knowledge in your brain and thinking and discussion. Whereas if we don't have that term observer, we're going to spend half that conversation trying to get on the same page about what we're talking about because it's an advanced topic. So just modularity, uh, good abstraction. Same with solid. Like if you send me a, a pull request thing, say like, Hey, where's the, where's the, where's the S you know, this is uh, you, you've got your dependencies intermingled here. You know, I can use these, these shorter words and like, you know, you know what it means if I say your dependencies are intermingled here, or you've got uh, your logic kind of uh, your presentation and your query logic mixed together because you've been doing this sort of stuff a long time. You've been having discussions like that for a long time. So it's great that I can give you like five words that mean a lot to you. So it's more about like coming up with a common vocabulary. Right, and building a ubiquitous language. I was just about yeah. to say ubiquitous language. Yep. yep. And uh, don't forget to measure, and then don't forget to do it. Uh, it's kind of funny to think like you can like you know get the TDD book, work all weekend on it, get back to your day job, and then never do it again. Yeah, I mean, uh, along with all these mentoring tips, the thing that that stands out is. And I, Joe didn't share it in this, but he actually had a slide in his presentation deck that actually showed that one of the most effective ways to learn is to teach. It, it's one of the reasons why we did this podcast. I mean, when we first talked about this, the way to sharpen and enhance your skills is to force yourself to really dig into it, right? And And so going into all the topics that we have over time and, and continuing to do that, it forces us to go read books. It forces us to do more practices. It forces us to take a look at our code and say, Oh, what could we have done different here? Right. And that's, I, we've learned a lot doing this podcast. I'm sure that we have. And, and so even if you don't think you're as far along is where you need to be to mentor somebody. Don't let that stop you, right? Like if you're if you're an intermediate developer by some random measure out there, find a junior dev and see if you can men mentor them, right? Or if you're a junior developer, find find your little cousin who's twelve and try and make some IoT type thing, right? Mentoring can happen at every stage of the game, and it will make you better along the way. Absolutely. So we'll have a, a bunch of links to uh, the various books we talked about. I actually want to pitch up codingblocks.net slash practice where I've written a bunch of essays and also gather just a lot of different links to um, various studies and, and whatnot. And if you actually drill into those articles, you'll see uh, there's a, just a ton of links in there as well as, well as my slides for, for the talk. Cool. Yep. So with that, let's head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby. And we've got a new participant here, so you're going to get some bonus tips. Yeah, so we'll, for, yeah. We'll, we'll let our guests go first. I'm sorry, Alan. I didn't no, mean no. to cut you off there. <clears throat> no, Excuse you're me. good. All right, cool. So I have a couple here. I'll start with probably the most interesting one first. So there's this app called Krypton, and basically what it is is you can sort of use your SSH keys securely by only having them on your mobile device. 
and then you can SSH from any machine without having to have your, you know, your private your private key stored on that machine. So it's especially good for environments where, like where I work, where I move from machine to machine all the time, and I don't really want my privates to be on there where somebody could be, you know, committing stuff and looking like it's me. Um, it's really cool. It comes with like a nice CLI application that you use to like pair your phone to that particular machine for that to that period of time. And then whenever you get ready to do anything that involves your keys, it sends you like a push notification saying, hey, I see somebody trying to like pull from GitHub using your credentials. Is this okay? And you basically tap, yep, I approve. This is cool. Hmm. And then everything works as normal. So that was pretty sweet. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> and bonus tip, it's written in Go, I'm pretty sure, uh, the back end is. And you got to like the right. pricing on it too. Oh, the core, the core version of it is uh, free. Zero dollars forever, it says. Now, I guess there's going to be something if you're trying to do this at a team level. They're, I guess, looking at how they might charge for that. It looks like does they don't say it say a price yet. They just say that it's like early access. Dude, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but it's awesome. Yeah, you great. should totally try it. Uh, second tip is uh, Sourcegraph, which is another platform I think which their most of their tooling is written in Go as well. They have an awesome Chrome plugin for if you want like. Sort of like an IDE type of experience when you're browsing through GitHub looking at open source repos and trying to navigate. Sometimes those repositories can be really large, especially if you're like big projects like Kubernetes. Uh, but a lot of times I use it to like figure out different idioms and patterns that big projects like that use to find some of those best practices and things I can incorporate into my own code. So like so the source graph plugin for GitHub is also really awesome. Man, we talked about something similar to that one though, but what was it called? Yeah, um, I'm going to go look that up right now. That what came from uh, Krittner. Yeah, I, I've seen something very similar to this before. That's a, We were talking about it earlier. That's Yeah, yeah both, it, was, it was... I'm sorry. No, no, both killer tools. Yeah, it was, a, it was a plugin specifically targeted towards GitHub that would basically put like a File Explorer view on it, right? Make it... Yeah, I've got it at work, but I don't remember the name. Oh, Octotree. Oh, uh, yeah. So it looks really similar where it gives you kind of the file browser on the left. And I really liked it actually because it made it really easy to get back to like readme's and stuff. So I could hop into the code and then like quickly get back out to the top level. Yeah. The cool part about Sourcegraph though is in addition to like the directory, it also gives you like very smart code navigation stuff like jump to definition and really sweet code search. Like far and beyond oh, like wow. the stuff that you get on GitHub by default. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is awesome. So like I could look for, show me places where they use this particular package. Or this thing from this package. Like, it, it's really cool. Very Excellent. nice. Excellent. All right, Joe, what you got? Uh, me? Uh, I just want to mention uh, our, our buddy Will Gant from Complete Developer Podcast. I just listened to him on another show, which is called the Junior Dev Podcast. And he was talking about what it's like and why it's beneficial to learn other programming languages. And this podcast is, uh, is kind of aimed at um, kind of more junior developers in, in there. So if you're looking for your first job or in those first couple of years, this is a fantastic show to listen to. And so I just wanted to make sure to, to give them a shout out if you're not already listening to it. Awesome. All right, and uh, I'm going to have a couple links in here for Unpackage. So this is basically uh, how you can use a, a CDN for everything on NP NPM. So you can use it to quickly and easily load any file from any package using a URL, including you can specify the version as well that you want. Um, so it's pretty cool. I'm going to include... Uh, links to a GitHub with has examples of how you can use this thing as well as the link to unpackage itself. Uh, it's unpackage.com, but it's mm, with, you know, 
only one vowel. Well, so, hold on, hold on. yeah, un, yeah, not unpackaged.com. Yeah, u u n p k g dot com. There, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you would pronounce it unpackage, right? Yes. So that's really cool. It reminds me of this thing in Go called Go Package In that does a similar thing. It's almost like a proxy that like fronts all the NPM packages. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, if if you haven't already used it, it makes it really easy to just bring it in. Although I do kind of question too, like, okay, is that a bad habit though to to do it that way instead of like bringing it in as a an NPM package that I can then save the environment and yeah, it seems like so. Yeah, yeah, hard to say. Does it get listed in package JSON like a normal dependency? Just with like a different URL? No, not in the ones that, at least not in the ones I've seen now. Maybe, uh, maybe I need to dig into this thing more. But in the times where I've used it and where I've seen other people use it, it's like baked into like a script tag in your oh. in your HTML file. Like, right? think if you're bringing in Bootstrap or something like that, yeah, you want to pull it, yeah, okay. and you want to pull it from a CDN. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, cool. Did you have another one? Nope, that oh. was it. Oh, okay. Wow, I didn't realize. Way to put me on spot, Alan. I got to come up with a, <laughs> you said a, a couple second, links. third yeah, one. Well, saying. yeah, there's two links to the two <laughs> things. Now I got to come up with another one off there, the spot. So there, thanks. There are two links. All no, right, so, no pressure. So here we go. <laughs> All right, so this is this one's awesome. So in the previous episode, it, I, we had some sort of uh, I think it was our survey. Somebody was saying something about stand up desk. I can't remember exactly what the conversation was now. But like a lot of people had stand-up desks at their job. And we were like, wow, that's crazy. Companies just spent a lot of money on stand-up desks, which shocked us. So go ahead. Stack well, overflow survey results. Yeah. Okay. That's what it was. Okay. It wasn't our survey. Oh, I thought it was going to be, yeah. Cause there was another conversation where we specifically had like how to spend, you yes. know, like $2,500 and that, and that was kind of like what started the whole stand-up desk conversation. I think maybe at least from us in the past, you yeah. had, you had, um, Specifically, one of your things that you'd recommended was uh, the very by desk. the very desk. Yeah. So here's one that's really cool. This is a complete desk that we'll have a link to on Amazon that Richard wrote us directly in email and shared with us. And this particular stand-up desk, I, I asked him because one of the problems with cheap sit stand desks is typically when they're fully extended in the stand position, they're wobbly as heck. Like you can touch it and you just watch it like swing back and forth. And he said that this one was not, and they've bought several of them. This particular desk is called the Titan fitness a two, and it's actually motorized. It's got a top and it's got the motorized legs for 312 bucks. That's cheap, guys. You typically can't even buy a cheap desk for three hundred and twelve bucks, let alone one that's got a motorized stand on it. So, and that's free shipping. And free shipping is ridiculous, man. And if you if you uh, sign up for the Amazon Prime Rewards Visa card, you can get enough. Whatever. Um, <laughs> hey, can I slip? Can I slip a quick tip in here? You may. All right. Um, one thing I want to mention about those uh, those automatic ones with the uh, you can kind of hit it up and it'll go up, and you can walk out of the room and get a drink while it's rising or falling. <laughs> Don't, don't go get a drink because sometimes you might have something hanging off your desk oh. that ends up kind of getting stuck in the wall and uh, dragging a nice little line up there. So oh, dude. Uh, I punched a pretty nice little hole in my wall there. <laughs> <laughs> something just got jammed just the right way and just. I will so. say like typically if you have things like uh, 
like I have computers on my desk, right, or mounted to my desk. I actually have the things that that screw up to the desk that hold them, so that when the thing's going up and down, you know, it doesn't snag cables and all that. Although it doesn't fix the thing when you just got something hanging off your desk, charging your phone or something. But you know, yeah, interesting. I, I was expecting, I don't, and maybe you know, you guys were going to go here too. I, I really expected that Joe was going to tell us a sad story about it, like how he broke his new phone or something because he, <laughs> he hit the up button on it and walked away. And then the phone just happened to fall and land right on the metal leg or something of, of the desk or something. No, and, he put a hole in the wall. It was yeah. better. <laughs> I mean, who cares yeah. about a hole in the wall, right. man? That, that's okay. The interest- yeah, are you kidding me? My phone's been cracked for years. Oh, man, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I, can't, I can't talk about that. Um, I will say, so the cool part is it looks like this thing has, you know, a foot and a half of travel almost it goes from 28 inches tall from the top up to 47 so pretty good thing here uh so at any rate very good tip thank you richard for sending that one in and then the other one i got from the the same podcast episode on ms dev show where they were talking about blockchain this was really cool didn't even know it existed and i found out something else new about it so a lot of times when you're dealing with cloud services, whether it be AWS or Azure or any of them, typically there's a command line client for for interacting with these things. And they're way more powerful and you can script them out and you can do all kinds of stuff, right? So Azure has the CLI, but if you don't want to have to install that thing and bring down all the dependencies, you can go to shell.azure.com. And if you've got your Azure account set up, uh, you can go in here and you can actually interact with this thing directly. So you can you can spin up Azure services or do whatever you need to do all from an integrated environment that's a command line on the web. Really cool stuff. The other thing though too that I found out was is this is also baked in the Azure portal. So if you go to azure.com slash portal and you log into your shell there, up at the top, you'll see like a little bell. Uh, you'll have your search box, then a bell, and then you'll see this command prompt type thing. If you click that, it'll actually give you the shell down at the bottom. So there's two ways you can access it. You can either do it from directly within your portal, or you can go to shell.azure.com. So again, really cool stuff. I mean, it does all the stuff that the command line does, but again, you don't have to bring down all your dependencies and everything. It's all right there. So it's kind of a nice way. Oh, and the cool part is, so if you decide that you're going to do shell.azure, which if any of you guys just clicked on it and went to it, it was probably like, hey, you need to set up a block storage account for it or, or a blob storage, right? So the thing is, you can actually create your scripts because it's going to set you up a storage section. And when you save your scripts, they'll actually be there available so that when you come back next time, you can get directly to your scripts and pick up where you left off. So uh, you know, thanks, Carl. I stole your tip. I really enjoyed this one. So, you know, there you go. Great. Well, uh, huge thanks for Will uh, to Will for coming out tonight. I know I speak for all of us and say we've got a ton of respect for Will. Like, Will, I wish you could be like my full time guardian angel, just <laughs> <laughs> sitting on my shoulder, keeping me from making bad code and otherwise mistakes. So, I really appreciate you coming out here I'm and talking to us. I'm just glad y'all had me on, man. I'm such a huge fan. Like, this is such an honor to come and do this with y'all. And I miss y'all. Yeah. I'm trying to like, turn this into like a bro love fest. <laughs> no, nah, I mean, we, we had so many conversations when we all worked together. Like, we would just have awesome conversations about 
tabs versus spaces or formatting or, you know, the most performant way to do things or breaking things apart. Like it was always some good geek out things. Nougat versus Maven. Oh man. There's no, (laughs) look, Maven wins. Um, so, (laughs) so, uh, and, and that's painful for me to say as somebody who's a C sharp guy. Uh, but yeah, man, thank you very much for coming out. It's not a short drive for you, but we do appreciate it. Yep. And, uh, we hope that you, dear listener, also enjoyed, uh, this and, uh, you, you can find Will on Twitter at I am Will Madison. Follow him there. Yep. Yep. I will retweet a lot of Go stuff. So you'll learn something interesting about Go probably if you follow me. Awesome. And so with that, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Uh, Be sure to leave us a review if you haven't already by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, go ahead and check out our show notes, which are said to be some of the best around. Our examples, discussions, and more. Send your feedbacks, questions, and rants to the Slack channel codingblocks.slack.com and uh, follow us on Twitter too at codingblocks or head over to codingblocks.net and you can find uh, social links at the top of the page. All right, Outlaw's back here and ask my question now. All right. Dude, does the unicorn poop stand thing actually work? Oh my God, dude. The squatty <laughs> potty is amazing. You wanted to try it, didn't you? I, I was like, no, you're more than welcome. I didn't, I don't, I don't have to try it right now, but I'm just, I was curious. Man. I, I want to try it for science. Like, I always wondered, like, if I stood on this thing, would I be, like, likely to fall? Well, I mean, you don't stand on it. I know, it. but you squat, but, like, I don't know. I was like, can this support you? Yeah, your knees are going to be at your chin, <laughs> and you're going to feel things that you've never felt before. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's amazing, dude. Yeah? It, is, it is a game changer, and that's actually, like, the, you know, that that that's not the amateur league version one in there, because there's, like, a beginner version, right? <laughs> There's a begin- there's a beginner version one where you know you're like uh I forget how many inches tall it is and then there's that one which is the one you like you know you, you step up to right oh wait so you got to start small and then you graduate yeah because to the because it take it it's it- you're gonna pull a muscle trying to get <laughs> I think I saw this on Shark Tank. You got you got to have some yoga skills, I think. Oh my uh, god, <laughs> dude! I don't know that we're cutting this part of the show. I was being a blooper reel, man. <laughs> got to cut this part. He wanted to ask about my poop situation. What's wrong with that? Oh man, you know what's awesome is like when I first went up, when we first started recording over here because we used to record at my house. I went in there and he had that thing in there, and I was like. Man, in my mind, like at my house, I would have hidden that thing in the closet or something, right? Like, I don't want somebody to come and be like, oh, you, you poop with your knees in your face, right? <laughs> but I came out of there and I did the same thing. I was like, dude, really? You've got the squatty potty thing? And he's like, oh, man, it's amazing. I was like, all right. I mean, I'm intrigued now. Man. Can you rent one? Like, what's you. the return policy? I, I, I offer everyone, everyone that comes over that wants to try it, I'm like, you know, go right ahead. Feel, I'm not, no judging. I don't need to go. I just, I'm just want to stand on it for science or squat. Rather. Squat. Yeah. You could try sometimes. You sit yeah. on the toilet and you put your feet up on the. That's toilet. just you the thing. First, you might, right? you might, no, you might squat no. on it and then not realize. Like I didn't think I needed to go, and all of a sudden, boom! No, you don't squat. You sit on the toilet, right, and you stick your feet up on it, right? No, well, it's a squatting position once right. you do that. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, you don't oh, squat do you on it. You don't stand on it. Or no. You, sit you don't step. stand on it first. No. Oh, that's what I thought you did. No, you sit on the toilet and you stick your feet on it, and then then basically. You know, yeah. you'd slide it, you'd slide it to where, you know, you want it and then put your feet on it. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah, no. It keeps it all straight, man. It's like a straight line. <laughs> Will's going to take a bathroom break. We're here, crack. Because <laughs> <laughs> he steps up on it. Uh, that's awesome. Oh, God. Anyway. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that we cut every single episode, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Except this one. Except this one. Yeah, this has got to go live. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs>